Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Stacks. This is Jay. And I'm the city where everything takes place. I'm Hiroshana. Ooh. Um, Hiroshana, bad, But it also works. Next one. <laughs> Hiroshima Deathmatch. Great title. Oh, oh Weird. yeah. Oh. yeah. Fucking red titles in this series, I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> yep. In, including this first one, Battles Without Honor and Humanity. It's just a tremendous title for a film. Uh, the, the series is technically called The Yakuza Papers, but I think often also referred to as The Battles Without Honor and Humanity series. It is an accurate descriptor of every single battle that happens in this movie. Yeah, there is no honor and there is no humanity. And that's kind of the point. I mean, obviously, it's right there in the title. But yeah, it's about post-war Yakuza when my understanding, at least, of the genre is that Yakuza film had been you know, a pretty big genre for some years. But pre-war, it was very nostalgic. It was much like the samurai films. It was about the honor of the Yakuza. Whereas this is about how there isn't any of that right now. <laughs> yeah, it's about how modern Yakuza just don't do that stuff, that it's not uh, conducive to it. And also it's about post-nuclear Japan. Very importantly, post-nuclear Hiroshima. Um, a very... The, the city's going through some shit right now. Yeah, it's or like, at the time of the movie. Right. It, it's like mutant crime. Uh, the the nuclear bomb hit and crime heavily mutated through it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it does start right out with that. Uh, I should say Kinji Fukasaku. Uh, this is the first film of his we've covered, by the way, 1973. Uh, just, you know, so hyperkinetic, unbelievably dense. So fast, so incredibly fast. You can't look away from this thing for a second or you're going to miss an important plot point. Well, like every scene is about 20 seconds long and <laughs> <laughs> something ha something significant and historically important for one of the characters will happen in every one of them. And it's just like you get to the end of it and like, I need to watch it again because I don't really I, there's like 80 people that I didn't fully understand their arc. Yeah. And they front load all the introductions you meet 15 people in the first two minutes and they're all important. Yeah, you meet every guy, they get a title card with their name and what they will ultimately be, which is sort of helpful, but you don't necessarily get a good freeze frame of their face. <laughs> <laughs> no, because they're in the middle of a, like, the freaking bizarre chase from Aladdin. There's always some motion blur, and it's like, well, I think, who's that one? Uh, it gets hard to keep track of all of these people. And they're only on the screen for, like, half a second because they got to get through so many. Right. And like they're all dressed the same because all of them are former soldiers. Like they're all yep. just out of the army from uh, World War Two. So they, they're all in uniform. They all kind of look like it's it's tough. Yeah, it is. Um, especially since the, the factions that they're in in this scene isn't necessarily the factions they're going to be in when we catch up with them in the, for the main part. Right. Well, and especially because a lot of these guys won't really have anything to do until much later. For a big part of it, it's really just the Shozo Hirono and uh, Wakasugi show. Yeah, with all this other shit happening around them. Yeah, the, the, all the other guys, yeah, they're, they're like the nameless henchmen for quite some time. And it's like, oh, wait, no, all of these guys are important. Yeah, 
yeah, at first you're kind of wondering, why do I need to know this guy's name? Yeah, but but you do. <laughs> Ultimately, you do. <laughs> yep. So in in terms of the the nuclear element, it's very front loaded right from the first shot. The first shot is the mushroom cloud with the battles without honor and humanity title card. I think that's also pointed. Yep. Not a lot of honor and humanity to nuclear war, right? No, no, there is not. <laughs> uh. So yeah, I mean, yeah, you get the mushroom cloud, you get that bright red uh, battles without honor and humanity credit, and the credits play out are just like burning buildings, the the irradiated post nuclear Hiroshima, mm-hmm. with this uh, this crazy like funky trumpet song playing, just banging classic beat music, uh, yeah. sort sort of like this '60s beat music explosion in Japan, group sounds, I guess they called it, which we will later find out in this movie. That's the song it plays when every time somebody dies. It so rolls. that playing <laughs> over the mushroom cloud is like, oh, yeah, this is the people dying song. Yeah. And the, the death song, like uh, what, what's our uh, in uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion. She's got her revenge song. Oh, this yeah. is a series that needs a death song. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so pointed. It's just like. Ding, ding. Oh, it rips. <laughs> so good. So it begins in Kure, which is part of Hiroshima, uh, you know, within the prefecture in 1946 with just this very bustling black market street market. So much crime is happening in this market at this very moment. It's all crime. It's a black market. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I mean, mean like violent crime. Yeah, well, the the main thing is that this Japanese lady is being chased through the crowd who are mostly unperturbed by it. Uh, by a a bunch of American soldiers who uh, obviously intend to sexually assault her. Yeah. At first I thought maybe she stole some bread and this was the Aladdin scene, but no, 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 she's not one step ahead of the bread line. Uh, They're after her. And as they run through the crowd, brushing past people, chasing this screaming woman, uh, they pass several of our important characters (laughs) And our most important one first, Shozo Hirono, uh, the the title card says he's the future underboss of the Yamamori family. Of course, the Yamamori family at this point does not exist. Yeah, we we won't even know what that means for another 20 minutes. It's going to be a while. Uh, This guy is based on a real person named Kozo Mino, and he's kind of the main character of the whole series, is my understanding. He's, He's interesting. I thought that he might be the guy who the hero from the Yakuza video games was based on. Could but be. that guy has like Superman uh, morality. He won't kill. Mm. And this guy, uh, he won't use guns. This guy will kill and will use guns uh, in about two minutes. Although he is the most honorable person within uh, this whole framework. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, or the least dishonorable yeah, I mean, you got Wakasugi as well, who's fairly honorable, and you've got Sakai, who will come out to be pretty honorable by the end. But, yeah, and they all end up just working for and with some of the shittiest people imaginable, though. The shittiest guy, Yamamori. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, this guy. He's, oh. he's hilarious. He's a very comical character. We'll, we'll have to get to him. So with, with uh, Shozo... 
uh, notably, we've recently covered another movie he was in. He's the grandpa in Great Yokai War. No kidding. Yeah, Bunta Sugawara. You know, a long-running actor. He is in all of these. He's the star of this whole series. But yeah, oh, he, he was grandpa. So it's grandpa like you know, with the 40 beans. years later. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So uh, we, we meet him as well as Shinichi uh, Yamayata, who, you know, is also future underboss of the Yamamori family. This is one of the least important ones. Uh, he doesn't do a whole lot. It's important to note that they're already running so that by the time the freeze frame catches them, their face is half off of the screen. Yeah, and in motion blur. So you really don't get much of a freeze frame. You really had to be paying attention to them as they were run past. <laughs> I thought they were the ones chasing the girl at first. It's hard to see. Like, it's it's just total chaos. <laughs> yep. So uh, the, the uh, Shozo and... Like a buddy of his, I I don't I guess it's Yamayata maybe. I, I think they, so. They they try to stop the GIs uh, from uh, raping this woman, and the police show up and they're like, "Hey, don't make trouble with the GIs." <laughs> <laughs> and then the MPs show up, and I'm already seeing like, "Oh my God, there are four layers of boots on the ground policing, and they don't like each other." This and they're all. Is a mess. Well, and they're all quasi-authority. You know, they're, they're, none of them have full authority. They're all kind of in this weird sort of mixed space. Uh, it, it is just total chaos on every level. Yeah. So Shozo's like, come on, just let the girl get away. You know, we'll we'll stop. We'll, we'll stop making trouble, but let the girl get away first. We, we would still like to stop this rape. <laughs> oh, no, they're Americans. You got to let them do the rape. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, these guys are sort of in charge. You know, they they don't answer to any authority. Like the Yakuza will, of course, be forced to. Mm -hmm. So elsewhere, we meet Toro Ueda, who's one of the more important guys. Okay, so he's the one who, he's the guy who chops off the arm at the beginning, right? He's the guy who gets an arm chopped off. He's, He's one of the two dudes who gets their arms chopped off. So he's the dude who's got sunglasses, really colorful scarf. He's very distinct when they first show him. Right, yeah. He's one of the guys with the facial scar, too, I think, right? I believe so, yeah. I I think he's already got that at this point. Yeah. So he runs into Doi. Kiyoshi Doi, the head or the boss of the Doi family. Who, uh, Who is really being set up to be the main villain of the whole thing for about the first half of the movie until he's not. He's vaguely adversarial. He seems to be the competition. It's just that internal strife is the bigger problem that they have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Doi is like, you're trespassing on my on Doi territory. And there's a very chaotic fight that breaks out that's hard to follow exactly what's happening or who any of these people are. Keep in mind, we're probably at about... <laughs> 30 seconds of runtime. Oh, yeah. This just blasts past. We're meeting people. We're having uh, these guys, you know, a, a bunch of doi thugs grab Toro and uh, Hiroshi Wakasugi, another of our most important characters, comes up. He slaps Toro and they haul him and his buddy into a shack where their arms are chopped off. Each yeah. one has their right arm chopped. Yeah. So they're going to. 
unfortunately, it won't be another 50 years until 1991 when uh, human arm transplants become available. Yeah. And they've well, got problems of their own. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they don't have the bugs worked out for these guys. So uh, I, I just love the, the shot, the way, you know, the, Toro's arm gets chopped. And then there's his buddy who I don't think we ever get a name for. I don't think he shows up again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the arm goes flying towards the screen. Yeah, and there's just, like, just enough of a freeze frame that you just have <laughs> arm stump frozen in the center of the screen for just a moment. Yeah. Great. Really sets a template for the violent chaos of the movie. This is like if you uh, – this movie feels like if you put The Godfather on one and a half times speed and then went fast-forwarded, like, ten times through all the happy parts – yeah, I think it's more like just 10x speed the whole time. It's total fucking <laughs> yeah. full tilt. Because it covers 20 years-ish. And it's only 99 minutes. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it, it doesn't just go 20 years later. It's like, okay, now here's what they're doing in 1953. Here's what they're doing in 54. Yeah, it's just like, okay, we got to hit all of these. It's like a an entire movie infodome. So elsewhere, we meet some of our other main people. We've got Shuji Yano and... Masakichi Makahara, both of them are working a soup counter right now. Okay, they're going to be part of the uh, Yamamori family yes, as I well think, later on. I, I think it says under them as well, uh, yes. future Yamamori underboss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're not running their soup counter very well. We see them spill <laughs> a bunch of shit on the ground and just, you know, it's like, ah, whatever, just put it in the pot. Handfuls <laughs> just... of dirt and sticks, whatever. Yeah, you can see the sticks sticking out. I mean, there's an entire pig head in there, too. It's it's just, you know, who cares? Yeah, no, it's, it's a street counter soup. In a black market, no less. Yeah. So some dudes show up with stolen goods, tailed by more military police. And uh, the dudes include another couple important guys. We've got Uichi Shinkai. Shinkai's pretty important later. Oh, yeah, yeah. He'll have his own men and everything later on. I think he's... <laughs> Future his, underboss captain? Yeah, his men will be kind of important. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they they get some cards. They get uh, cards. And death cards. Uh, and Seiichi Kanbara, another pretty important guy, much later, doesn't do anything for quite a while. Well, something kind of in the middle, too. But he, right. He, yeah. He sort of he, vanishes a few times. Yeah. I mean, he's... He's more important for being just kind of a fuck up rather than him being sort of a main character type at any point. Yeah, he he just his whole thing is he sucks and it makes life hard for people. Right. Although he has a great first line. It's the MPs show up and he screams fucking cops. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also among them, of course, Tetsuya Sakai, who will kind of ultimately became become the other main character by the end. Uh, and all of them get seized by the military police. Oh, fun fact. Almost none of these people are going to survive the movie. Yeah, no, I believe just Shozo. Of the people we've met so far, I think that's it. Yeah, pretty sure. I mean, it's his memoirs that it's based on, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the the real guy. Oh. Well, well, I mean, we know he survives, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we we see him go to a bar. He's playing like... I don't know, some sort of 
old nostalgic record on a record player in a pretty crowded bar and you know no one likes it you know it's too old-fashioned for everyone yeah but he's like hey i like this fuck you all yeah shut up this is my favorite song screw you and he's like given a stink eye to any japanese girls who are coming in with american gis you know there's obviously uh, uh resentment there yeah yeah so his buddy yamagata shows up and he says he's got buds in the Yamamori family. Oh, the 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 family that these guys are all going to be underbosses for eventually. Right, and he comes in and his like he's there with some other buddy who I don't know if he ever gets named, and he's been cut by a yakuza in some sort of huge black market brawl. He's his like had his cut in half. Oh yeah, right. This this part. Yeah. Yeah, the yakuza is just drunk and swinging his katana around right and they're like okay let's go get some weapons we'll go grab some of those yamamori guys and we're gonna go get revenge for our uh military buddy getting cut up here i love the one guy who's like tries to conceal the sword in his pants (laughs) that's so funny yeah he he they're like oh you you better hide that so he puts it all the way down his pants and so it restricts his leg movements and he just topples onto his face (laughs) (laughs) he never makes it to the fray no he doesn't get there but you know shozo he gathers a group of you know his buddies all of the dudes we've been seeing uh various guys who were just recently out of the military who are future yamamori guys as well as some actual yamamori affiliates i think uh, I think so, yeah. Because I think that's how they get their weapons. They go run to them. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, uh, Kanbara and Sugiya have all been beaten up. <laughs> so okay. we we got to go deal with that. So we're gonna, and, you know, they meet up with Kanbara and Sugiya, and they're like, okay, let's discuss our options. <laughs> Shozo's like, okay, I'm gonna fight this hardcore yakuza myself. You guys just sit back, and they they give him a gun to go uh, <laughs> deal with the drunk Yakuza who's just making a scene. I love the way he presents it. Like, it's the only obvious choice that you could possibly do. Like, hey, wouldn't it be bad if you guys fought him and you all lost face? Seriously, just let me do it. Come on, guys. It's weird. It's kind of how Shozo has all of his conversations. He He sort of sets out a list of things and, like, well, my understanding is this, this, and this. You know, he's my sworn brother, so, you know, it doesn't work there. And this guy belongs to this guy. He's very concerned about all of the classical honor stuff. It's just nobody else is. Yeah, no, <laughs> nobody is. But they'll certainly <laughs> pretend to be. Yeah, so, you know, we, we frequently have him go through all of these important honor matrices. It's like, you know, uh, our, our classic reference, Homestuck. It's like he's pulling out his shipping charts and it's like, okay, well, this <laughs> This and this and uh, I mean, really, the only way this works is if I am the auspicer and (laughs) so, yeah, he goes and he shoots the fucking drunk Yakuza dead. Yeah, um, it takes him three tries because the first two times the gun doesn't fire. (laughs) It just doesn't work. Cheap garbage. Yep, but it does. But then he does. And we go death song. So Shozo. Oh, it's great. So Shozo has to go to prison. And his cellmate turns out to be Wakasugi, who we saw 
you know, slapping around our guys and chopping the arms earlier. Mm-hmm. Wait, so, so Wakasugi was doing the chopping? I don't know if he was doing the chopping. I think he ordered it because he's the one who okay. slaps Toro and then his guys haul them into that shack where the chopping takes place. Right. OK. OK. <clears throat> so, I mean, Wakasugi also establishes himself as someone who really cares about the rules. He starts this riot over, you know, hey, where the fuck's our rice rations uh have you police eaten it instead of giving it to us this is a bunch of bullshit he starts a riot mm-hmm. and we cut to him and uh shozo in solitary but not because the prison's too full to have solitary confinement yeah. rooms they're sellies they both have the same problems it's like ah, we'll we'll put them in together isolated from the rest <laughs> and wakasugi says like all right i'm i have to commit harakiri uh not gonna actually kill myself i mean i hope not but <laughs> you know it, I'll, I'll be hurt to a degree that the the prison they're you know they're overflowing they're bleeding money nobody can do anything here so they can't actually fix it i'll have to be let out so i can go to real doctor <laughs> <laughs> and then once i'm out i'll find someone to pay your bail because your 12 year sentence for killing a yakuza can seems, be bought with bail. Yeah, it absolutely can be bought. And, you know, it just seems like bullshit. I, I, you know, and, hey, let's become blood brothers. Yeah. So they do like this whole almost like a vampire ceremony. It's cool. They, you know, they each they, they do a cut on each guy's uh, arm and then do kind of like a blood suck kiss thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we're still not at the 15 minute mark, I should mention. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> this is all like about 12 minutes of movie. This He's already in prison. <laughs> everything happening. This isn't the first time he'll be in prison either. <laughs> no, I think he hits prison. Or, I mean, it is the first times. time. It's not the last time. Not the last. Uh, I, I believe there's three stints in prison for him in this movie. <laughs> My understanding is it's in prison that he wrote most of these memoirs. Oh. Kind of makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, well, this is the thing with prisons. If you're too sick or you have some money, they'll just let you out. It doesn't matter. <laughs> they I mean, just don't have the time for this or the space. Yeah, no, they, they got to they gotta let people out to let all the new criminals in because the prison's just too packed. Yeah, I mean, it's just there's so much crime. Yeah, it kind of happens when you have massive instability, like when two cities get erased. Mm-hmm. So we meet Yoshio Yamamori, the future boss. Finally, this <laughs> fucking asshole. I I love this character as an antagonist. He's great. He's so funny. He's hilarious. All his crying jags. <laughs> What am I supposed to do? I can't make an enemy of Okubo. If they made an American version of Battles Without Honor and Humanity, he'd have to be played by Jim Belushi. Oh my. Yes. Yes. Oh, I just wish you'd do this for me. I'm really in a bind, guys. <laughs> There's only one way to get out of it, but it's so heinous, I don't <laughs> even want to ask. But if you suggest it yourself, 
And of course, he just always switches on a dime. He's like, okay, well, you know, as long as I don't have to spend any money, though. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and at first, he seems like he's just going to be a bumbling, incompetent boss. Yeah, and he seems generous. Like, the first few times we run into him, it seems like he's actually a generous, caring, good boss. But it's because he's good at pretending to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he is there, to, like, he's the guy that uh, Wakasugi gets to let him out. Uh, Yamamori pays his bail and greets him as he's let out of prison. Yeah, and he's like, hey, you know, I'm the one who paid your bail. Oh, wow, I owe you my life. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> you sure do. Hey, you know, I'm starting up a family. Why don't, why don't you uh, come get on the payroll and we'll, you know, uh, we'll, we'll all be... A uh, uh, new family. We're we're gonna make lots of money together. You always so we, have to have family. Family's important. So they do this forming the family ceremony. And interestingly, at this point, Doi is not an adversary. He's there. He's there to uh, sort of be a witness. Yeah. So Doi and Yamamori both work under Okubo, but. Yep. Yeah, I think it's like this whole thing where Okubo pits Yamamori and Doi against each other and it just gets way out of hand. I'm not really even sure how much Okubo is trying to do anything. It sort of seems like he's just the guy at the top and everyone under him is just doing their own fucking battles. And it's like, I don't give a shit. (laughs) You know, it's probably that. He does say like, hey, I like to be hands off. Yeah. And he, you know, he's amused later by the uh, the old schoolness of Shozo. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the uh, boss Doi, I mean, he even shows up to uh, see Shozo when he gets out of prison, just to thank him for taking care of Wakasugi while he was in there. Yeah, because Wakasugi is a Doi guy, which uh, he's like a main Doi guy. Yeah, and the fact that they're in two different families, but sworn brothers is going to come up. Oh, it's like a Romeo and Juliet type thing. Mm-hmm. So we have the the formation ceremony. Uh, you got Doi there. You've got Okubo. Doi is bearing witness. They do this sake ceremony. And Kenichi Okubo, who is an underworld elder, is uh, the go-between for establishing the family. Mm-hmm. So 1949 is our first flash forward. We cut cut forward three years to the family being, you know, in motion. They're they're building. Yeah, yeah. They're they're doing they're doing all they're doing all right. They got some gambling establishments. We see just a huge brawl break out at one of them because the beer isn't cold enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it's uh, Ueda and yeah. Shozo who do the brawl, right? Yeah, they're like. Ah, this is bullshit. This beer's not not cold enough. Fuck you guys, and they start a whole brawl. Yeah, it's like this is horse piss. Hey, I'll get you some actual horse piss. <laughs> and Kibar's like, hey guys, can't we get along? Yeah, come on, guys. Uh, and and we learn, which is very important, Ueda is actually a distant relative of Okubo, which makes him oh. kind of a made guy. Yeah, he kind of gets diplomatic immunity. Yeah. In theory. And uh, they they sort of get in trouble over it. You know, them uh, starting this fight. I think it's it must be an Okubo place that that's uh, that they're starting this brawl in. 
because this is where he he gets in trouble and they have bad blood and he's uh, he has to commit uh yubitsume yeah where where he takes off his pinky right yeah yeah um i was understanding that uh it's it's, it's hard to say i thought I was under the impression it was a Yamamori place that Ueda came in to start shit, and but Shozo got in shit for because it's it, <laughs> right. I mean, it, it is a thing where the two of them are both kind of there, and they're like it's it's totally Ueda's fault, and Okubo will absolutely say, I mean, it was Ueda's fault anyway, so whatever, man. <laughs> but for whatever reason, there's bad blood. Uh, they they have kind of a, a a thing where Yamamori potentially is going to lose face, but he doesn't want to have to pay any money to Akubo. Yeah, his <laughs> wife, who who is totally in on all the Yakuza shits, like, well, you better apologize with money. Yeah, and he's like, I don't want to do that. So it's Shozo's idea, and it's like, okay, well, you know, the the classic thing would be to cut off my pinky. He's like, oh, well, Yamamori's like, well, at least that won't cost us anything. And he just walks out of the room. Like, that seems resolved. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, wow, what a cheapskate. Yeah, I'm like, geez, what a dickwad. But then they're like, eh, I mean, it's it's probably fine. The wife comes back and he's like, well, I mean, none of you seem to know how to do it, but I know how to do it. I've seen this done before. <laughs> I got my special pinky cutting utensils right here. My pinky the... mat and my pinky platform. The tatami mat, and you get just a really solid butcher knife, and you just use your body weight to uh, sever it straight through in one one stroke. Oh, shit, but it went flying. <laughs> it goes flying into the garden. They almost <laughs> lose it. A chicken takes it, of course. <laughs> <sighs> I can't remember who it is. He, they, they find it in the chicken pen. He pulls it out and like, Ah, uh-huh, it's all packed up. It looks so pathetic. <laughs> uh, but they do present it to Okubo. And he's, like I said, he's amused. He thinks it's kind of funny. <laughs> he's like, wow, you guys did not have to do this. This was totally unnecessary. You know it was Ueda's fault. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, teach my son how to not suck. He's like, yeah, you, you seem to be pretty cool how about you sort of take him under your wing i'm gonna give you a whole bunch of money to do a lavish burial for the finger because this is adorable (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and it does really contrast immediately with how cheap and shitty yamamori is like we we are getting a contrast between bosses that akubo is clearly he has money to throw around and he's willing to Mm mm-hmm I think it's also here where they decide to introduce Yamamori to, like, the senator or whatever. Yeah, they uh, Okubo introduces him to municipal assemblyman Shigeto Makahara, who's, like, his guy. It's, it's like, the thing in The Godfather that everybody's complaining about Vito not sharing his guys. Yeah, yeah, like, he, he's got a senator, or uh, an assemblyman. Right, so it's like, okay, you know, I'm going to get you, or sorry, not uh, Makahara, Nakahara. Uh, and Nakar is kind of an important dude as well. Mm-hmm. So his thing is, he's got, he's like, look, there's around 50 billion yen of just hoarded Navy goods all, all over this uh, town. And I want them. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I want to put them toward reconstruction, but there's this thing, the Kanemaru faction wants it. The idea is they have to have a vote, and he wants one of the people to just not be around for the voting. Yeah, I, Yamamori, could you just eliminate a vote for me? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're the Kanemaru faction, they're trying to appropriate this 50 billion yen worth of shit for a campaign funds for this guy, Ikejima. He's like, I don't want that. I, I want to actually put this toward rebuilding this area instead of propping up some shitty politician. Yeah. So, yeah. So he asks Yamamori to just disappear one of the other voters for a little bit. Right. And this is sort of a tough situation in terms of honor. This is one of those points where, of course, uh, uh, Shozo's going to have to pull out his shipping charts, right? Yeah, he's... He's explaining it to Yamamori. That, <laughs> it's so funny that he has to explain it to Yamamori, too. Yeah, it's like, okay, so the the other faction of the Assembly, uh, those are Doi's guys, so if we make a move against them, Doi's going to be mad at us, and yeah. this is going to cause a war, and uh, Okubo's not going to like it, and Yamamori's just sitting there. He looks like he's got the biggest headache as he's listening to this. He's rubbing the bridge of his nose like, I hate this. Can't you just solve it for me, please? I don't know what to do. I'm in an impossible situation because I couldn't refuse this favor after being introduced. So the the whole deep thing, we got Doi supports Kanemaru. He's supporting this faction because he supports this governor. And there's already this pre-existing bad blood because of the Ueda thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And Ueda's part of this job as well. So it's like, I mean, th- that just increases the problem. And it's going to be bad if Kanemaru wins because that's going to just like give all of this money to Doi. He's going to become a big deal. So it really is in our best interest to make sure this Kanemaru faction and the Ikejima campaign doesn't go through. But Shozo, your best bro is on the other guy's team. So for honor demands, you kind of sit this one out. And this is also the first point where Sakai shows up and we establish that he also has a bit of a a strain of honor. But we don't see much of him because he's always going on these sabbaticals or some shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's like, all right, I did this mission. I'm going to disappear for a few years. Yeah, I got to go, you know, wait until things cool off. He's intelligent about the way he does this stuff. And... It also shows that he doesn't really have any trust for Yamamori. Because right away, he's like, he's telling off Yamamori. Like, you showed weakness by doing this. You got us all into this fucking stupid situation. Yeah, yeah. Like, you went too too far to uh, lower yourself by giving a pinky finger over something that was the other guy's fault. Yeah, you know, this was a really stupid thing for you to do. You're the one who caused all of this. You're the one who should deal with it. And, of course, Yamamori, he begs them for help. (laughs) Please make this go away from me. (laughs) I just want to be a good Yakuza boss. And Sakai is so pissed off. And it's like Shozo's like, look, this is a thing that has to be done. And, you know, he winds up all his charts. He shows all the, you know, arrows (laughs) to different people and, like, Look, and the the thing is, me and Wakasugi, who's with Doi, they're, he's my blood brother, so I can't do it. It kind yeah. of 
so you sort of have to do it, Sakai. <laughs> and it's like, ah, fuck, fine, we'll abduct this councilman. <laughs> we we won't even we won't even kill him because that's a little too much. We'll just make him miss the vote. Right. We'll just hold on to him for a day, and that, that's what they do. The vote goes through, and they're able to get it passed. And then, of course, Kanbara blows it. Yeah. <laughs> As we've established, Kanbara is the guy who shows up to screw things up, and he's drunk at a bar. He's drunk at a bar talking about this whole operation that the Yamamori family did. Yeah, he just, like, ahaha, we control the vote. Eat shit. <laughs> and Doi comes up to him and he's like, excuse me? He's surrounded by Doi guys. It's like, oh, they're right behind me. You know, it's that sort of situation. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> the girls get up to leave. <laughs> yeah, they, they take him outside. They beat the shit out of him. They slam his head in a car door a whole bunch. <laughs> and It cost us 50 billion yen, you fucker. Yeah, we wanted that money. That would have made us so powerful. Like, well, that was sort of the point. And, of course, they he gives up Yamamori, because why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yamamori made me do it. It, it was Yamamori. They're like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So they send Wakasugi to, to go talk to Yamamori about it. And, <laughs> like, because he has an in with Shozo, so... It's like, look, I can probably talk to those guys without it being a big deal. I've got an in there. Or actually, no, I think he goes to warn them. Yeah, he goes to warn them. No, Doi doesn't send him out ahead. He's Doi's like, what the hell are you even doing here? Right. So Doi's like, yeah. you should have killed him before I even showed up. Right, because Doi shows up and it's like, hey, were you warning them? You're not supposed to warn them. You should have killed them for me. <laughs> hey, hey, no, you can't talk to my blood brother like that. Right. Yeah, and, I can. I'm your boss. And his plan is he's going to go talk to boss Kato who's in Hiroshima city and we'll get him to mediate this deal. But Kanbara shows up and they're like, Oh, it's, it's Kanbara. Can you let me in? <laughs> and of course there's a whole bunch of goons with him and Doi. Yeah. And this is where, what are you doing here? Wakasugi son of a bitch. And he actually has to run them off at gunpoint, which really puts him in a bad situation. Yeah. It's like, dude, you realize you're pointing your gun at me, your boss, right? And it's like, you're going after my blood brother. Yeah, this is my blood brother. I mean, we have a whole thing. Don't you understand honor? Yeah. How, how did I get out of prison, huh? Do you remember? So Doi leaves and Yamamori cries. He begs forgiveness. Oh, you've done so much for my family. You've showed us what real honor is. Please <laughs> help us. You, you, we're going to make you a guest member of our family. <laughs> Since Doi probably won't talk to you anymore. Yeah, you kind of really screwed up the situation in your own family, so you can be with us now. Yeah, that's great. So Shozo, he's at Kato's, hiding out in Hiroshima. And Wakasugi shows up six months later to uh, tell him about all of this bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So, so in in the time, because Kanbara screwed up, he's on the outs with uh, the Yamamori clan. Doi has decided to hire him and make him one of his henchmen. He's a double <laughs> agent. <laughs> Except everybody knows it. 
Well, everybody knows, and also, like, Joy plans to make this power play, that he's going to be coming to see Kato pretty soon, and Wakazui's like, I don't want him to have more power, I'm going to have to be the one to kill him. I'm the one who has to do it. (laughs) Right. And Shozo's like, no, no, and he pulls out his charts, look, look how this is going to affect your credibility. (laughs) (laughs) Let me do it. Yeah, I I got it. Yeah, we, we we traded off. You did the thing earlier. You you got him out of the place. It's it's my turn. This is how we min max our honor and humanity ratings. All right. So it's like let's let's go back to Yamamori. We'll talk to them. And Shozo cuts back and like talks to the Yamamori's and like, what what do you mean nobody but Wakasugi even knew about this shit? <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? Why didn't anybody? Why wasn't anybody else told? <laughs> So Wakazuki's like, forget it. Let's go kill him right now. Let's just go. And Shoza's like, yep, yeah. And everybody else is like, I don't know. I know you guys just heard about this, but this is important. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I, I can't remember who it is. I think it's, uh, maybe it's Yama, uh, Yamagata, who's saying, like, he, he feels ill. Like, There's just got to be a better way to go about this. He doesn't really have the stomach to go on a war path. Right, yeah. And Makahara, you know, he starts crying because his wife is pregnant. It's like, I'm not afraid to die, but, you know, got a kid on the way. So, you know, I can't do the fighting. So he leaves and Yamamori comes in and he he blows up and this is him doing his tough guy act. He has a big tantrum. No, I'll fight Doi myself. Only my family will be ruined. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, Yamamori, you won't have to do that. No, no, we'll help you. Oh, you do that for me? <laughs> it's it's Shozo again. He's like, I'll do it. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> when Doi comes to visit Kato in Hiroshima, I'll take him out. Which, of course, is a pretty big gamble because Shozo has two strikes against him. This is, you know, he, he's been in prison. There's the other thing that he's already hiding out for. If they caught him for this, he could get the death penalty. Yeah. And this is the biggest boss tier thing. Just, oh, I'll, I'll owe you for this forever. I'm, I'm going to make so much money over the next 20 years. And if, if you have, we'll give you the entire business. <laughs> and everybody cries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's going to jail for us. He's really really truly the most honorable and humanity like member of the family they like open up the lockbox and they take all of the money out that the family has and it's like go have fun one last time just have a big blowout and everybody in the room is crying and <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous because you you know by this point that the boss is like the abusive dad to the family yep Totally. <laughs> he's he's just emotionally manipulating everyone. Is this the part where he's having sex with the girl? Like <laughs> the geisha? Before? Yes. Yeah. Where, uh, where, where we get to see his awesome back tattoo, that yeah. huge fish. God damn. Rad as hell. And uh, yeah, the geisha, please be more gentle. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I've got no time. And to me, that is like the entire thesis of the movie. Yes. Be more gentle, movie. There's no time. We only have 99 minutes and 20 years of story. 
hands like we've, we've got so much to get through like please be more gentle uh uh, <laughs> uh fukasaku please just settle down it's like no, no time i'm gonna make eight of these they're gonna come out in three years <laughs> <laughs> so our first specific date october 16th 1949 uh in in hiroshima kato's Doi shows up for his visit. And it's it's much like the the hit on Vito, on Vito Corleone. Uh, he gets shot in the street six times outside oh, in the lane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he gets got good. And he doesn't die right away. He has to go to the hospital. He does ultimately pass away from it, but it takes a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they are able to carry him away and all that. But he's, I mean, he's he's badly shot. He's He's got a lot of holes straight through his torso. Yep. So Kenbara is the first one to show up at Shozo's hideout, which is super suspicious, because he's isn't been our Ken double Barra, agent guy. <laughs> yeah, isn't he a doi guy now? Don't we all know this? We've, we've all heard that. And he says, no, no, Yamamori sent me. Trust me. Come on. What could it hurt you? <laughs> <laughs> Would I lie to you with my plaid jacket? He's he's got a real he he's got the look of a car salesman or a game show host. He really does. <laughs> so uh, obviously, for good reasons, Shozo does not trust him. But he's like, I guess I gotta go along anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the chart says. Yeah, like well, I mean, it's what I'm supposed to do. So he gets in. Kenbara takes him in a truck to the mouth of a tunnel and he just stops and runs away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a doi hit or an attempted doi hit. A, a carload of doi guys show up. Oh, I've got engine trouble. That's why I'm stopping in this tunnel. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to go check on that. Yeah, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, it, uh, Shozo's able to just run away. And he ultimately just has to go back to prison. It's like, ah, the only safe place for me is to get in prison and get away from these guys. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's got the entire Yamamori business waiting for him when he comes out. So, you know, he just not too bad. (laughs) Quietly serve a sentence and he's made for life. Hey, no problem. And it turns out Doi does die while he's in there. So that works out pretty well. Mm -hmm. He's not going to have a bunch of Doi guys after him because that's not a thing anymore. Nope. So outside, we, we kind of get some time away from Shozo and sort of see what's going on with the family in the meantime. And Sakai sort of rises in prominence here. Oh, did, has Wakasugi died yet? Not quite. Okay, okay. Uh, I think that's about to happen, right? So Sakai returns from whatever sabbatical he was on. I don't remember what this one was about. Maybe it was he was the he, waiting for the heat to die down from a different thing. Yeah, it feels like this might be something else he did off screen. Yeah. So Wakasugi is like, all right, now that you're back, we have someone who's not an idiot near the top of this thing. I can probably take a vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And he goes to visit Shozo in prison. He's like, I'm kind of suspicious about Yamamori and all his intentions. I don't know if he's such a good boss. I mean, I know he did that whole thing, but I don't know, man. (laughs) 20 years down the road, he might not have to actually follow through on this. Or even just, that's future Yamamori's problem. Well, as well as the Kanbara thing. I mean, it's like, 
he yeah the the Kenbara thing seems pretty suspicious, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like Yamamori did send him. So, Maybe. what was that about? Yeah, hmm. he's like, you know what? I'm gonna go talk to Kenbara about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so December seventeenth, nineteen forty nine, we get our first death card. Okay, this is the one I'm thinking about. All right. Uh, Wakasugi goes and confronts Kenbara, and he shoots him in the head. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, as we got opening cards for everybody when we first meet him, we get death cards and it's a little freeze frame of the date and the Yeah, we, we just get a freeze frame of their dead body and uh, uh, the, the date of death. <laughs> yep. It's, like, it, it's really hard to keep track of these guys without those specific bits. They are very important to the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Wakasugi dies about halfway through the movie. Right. So first, Wakasugi kills Kanbara, and then police oh, right. are, are given a map. That's what it was, the map. Okay. Yeah, so the Wakasugi... map to Wakasugi's girlfriend's house. Right, because they're, they're looking for him after he shoots Kanbara. Kanbara mm-hmm. is killed. And right. then... Uh, police get just a, a map with a circled spot for the home of Wakasugi's mistress's parents. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Where uh, he's like, we, we see sort of what's going on in the house. They're dressing him up in her brother's clothes and they're going to take off to Osaka the next morning. Yeah. But uh, the police show up. Uh, they They hide him at first. He's hidden in the kid's bed. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they find him out. He does manage to shoot three cops in the melee, uh, but then he gets shot, falls out a window, and it's still December 17th, 1949. Yeah. Yeah. So later that night. Yeah, so he gets his death card. Yeah. And then, because it's 1950, the Korean War breaks out. Uh, yep, so that's another thing that uh, Hiroshima has to uh, deal with and change with. Pretty important, and uh, this is huge for Yamamori because he gets a contract for the U.S. military in uh, packing ammunition. Oh. So that's why they're in a big boom period for the family. Mm-hmm. And... For some reason, Yamamori's not given any of the men any money, because that's sort of his deal. So they're all <laughs> starting to deal drugs. Philippon. Yeah, yeah. Do you know and what Philippon he... is? No, I don't. It's meth. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're just dealing meth. Yamamori, we have to cook. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to cook, Mr. Shoso. I don't want to do anything. So... <laughs> Sakai, who's now a captain, he's kind of the main guy under Yamamori now. Mm. He goes to one of his underlings, Arita, who it's our first time meeting Toshio Arita. He is an underboss of the Shinkai family. So Shinkai has his own family by this point, even though we haven't seen Shinkai since like scene one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's really done nothing at all. And it's like, OK, this guy has his whole own family with this guy as an underboss and he's being scolded for dealing the file upon because uh, uh so far yamamori is technically against it <laughs> well, technically <laughs> and sakai is against it yes sakai is against it yeah 
and he's like, look, you're not supposed to be selling this stuff. And, you know, they complain about not having enough of a cut. And Sakai pulls him outside to just have a talk with him away from his his un, all his underlings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Shinkai himself shows up to challenge him. He's like, hey, this is one of my guys. What the hell are you doing? Uh, at your level, who gives a damn over a little bit of drug business? Yeah, but it's like, no, man, it's the principle. Right. So it kind of feels like, look, you're making us look bad. This is uh, going to get us more scrutiny by police. It's the same Vito uh, Corleone argument. Yeah, yeah. Like, the police think we're all the same. So if they see one of us dealing drugs, they'll think we're all doing it. Right. I, I don't want to be painted with that brush. And uh, everyone's kind of in agreement that Yamamori is taking too much off the top. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy's like, well, yeah. I, I mean, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he goes, they, they have a meeting. And he's like, look, I think the pachinko bars should just be free of your rake off. You know, you're, you're taking 70% off the top for everybody. Let's let the pachinko bars uh, be free of that. And then, you know, the young guys can make some money and establish themselves. But I need it. <laughs> it's like, come on, self-sustainability. <laughs> I'm gonna waste away. Because like all of the guys agree and like, well, yeah, the seventy percent off the top is obviously too much. Yeah, so, I mean it's a little crazy. <laughs> and, a little. And he is just sulking like a child about it the whole time. <laughs> I want seventy percent of all the money that gets made in this town. I need it for my fancy heater in the fireplace. <laughs> well, it's. I'm investing the money for you guys. That's why we're such a powerful family. I'm doing it for you. <laughs> so Shinkai randomly is like, you know what? The boss is right. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they just had this argument outside. It's like, look, the boss should stay boss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, if he doesn't stay boss, Sakai is going to have too much power. He's worried about... Sakai being the only capable one in the business. <laughs> it's it's ultimately an issue of just, well, I mean, Sakai is the only one who seems to know how to run a business and is doing everything well. If Yamamori isn't the guy at the top, uh, Sakai is just going to take over everything. Yeah. So him and Yano, Shinkai and Yano, figure like, uh, let's say the, the remaining 30%, you know, the... Uh, the with the 70% off the top, boss gets that. But the rest of it, we should all get an equal amount of it. Because Sakai is currently getting the most because he's doing the most. Right. It's it's kind of a... <laughs> it's it's like the states or the provinces, you know, all kind of <laughs> arguing over federal funds. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like that. Because, uh, you know, there, there's like a couple... Pro- it's, you know, here on the West Coast, we produce pretty much all of the the entire federal funds but yeah but you know (laughs) it's the whole thing it's a whole thing so yamamori says all right i'll let you guys decide but what yakuza son begrudges money to his father (laughs) (laughs) i'm just like 70 percent though come on 70 percent like your dad now come on what do you do yeah, what do, what does he do? 
And he leaves and they hold it to a vote. And Shinkai and Yano are the only ones who feel this way. That like, no, the boss remains the boss. It's like, no, no, come on. 70% is too much. Everyone agrees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Sakai's like, all right, we're, we're doing my thing. Uh, you just hide Toshio Arita. Just uh, go hide him somewhere to take the heat off. You know, deal with uh, the you know, deal with all of the drugs. Just uh, get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we we cut to six months later, and Shigai and Arita have a discussion. And it's like you know Yamamori's just selling all of the confiscated drugs in Hiroshima now, right? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> And Sakai's in on it. Like, he's part of the deal. He's making that money, too. So Arita takes Shinkai to meet Kanemaru, you know, our, our Kanemaru faction back in the day. Right, the, the assemblyman. Well, this isn't the assemblyman. Nakahara oh, no, was is, the assemblyman. Right, this was the the rival faction of assemblymen. Yeah. Uh, so they they go to talk to him, and he's like, look, I think you should take out Sakai and we'll rebuild the Doi family. You guys can be uh, underbosses in the new Doi. All right. And uh, oh, yeah, I should mention this is October 28th, 1954. We've got a specific date, which is never a good oh, thing. Oh, someone <laughs> might die. So Sakai confronts or no first. Yeah, no, it's Yamagata is the guy who gets killed here because he happens to see them meeting with Kanemaru. And right. uh, they shoot him to death in his car, you know, because so he so their word doesn't get out. Mm-hmm. And Sakai goes to confront Arita about the murder and is like, I want you to leave town. Just get out of town. And th- this is where Arita's like, come on, Yamamori is dealing drugs, too. Why don't you just stay off my turf? <laughs> What's <laughs> it like, to you? Yeah. And Sakai goes to confront Yamamori about it. Of course. Yeah, and it's like, who? <laughs> are you actually dealing drugs? Someone has to. You made me reduce my cut. <laughs> <laughs> what else were we going to do with the confiscated drugs? And this is where he, uh, Sakai says, you think you can make it on your own, Palanquin? <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's like, yeah, see where you go without us to do all the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, you useless fucking figurehead. <laughs> like call me a palanquin he's <laughs> like look all the money in the world isn't gonna win you a fight brother so you better watch it <laughs> yep <laughs> look you need to expel shinkai and arita they just need to be out of the family i don't want to deal with this anymore they probably killed yamagata there uh, there is some shady shit going down they're mm. rebuilding the doi family to be a fucking adversary to us yeah. <laughs> and Yamamori's wife comes in and is like, well, Shinkai is always defending the boss. But yeah, whatever. They'll all kill each other. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, like the, the only thing that they're worried about is Ueda might back Sakai. And Ueda's got, of course, the connection with Akubo. So. Right. Like, you know, we kind of got to keep Sakai under wraps here. Mm -hmm. So he decides to call a hit on Ueda. (laughs) (laughs) Great idea. Uh, uh, Ueda's getting a shave in the barbershop October 22nd. 
or oh. no, October 29th, 1954, they shoot him down. Yeah, right. And this is the, this is the gang war section. Yeah, yeah. This this is kind of where people are they're kind of getting godfathered here. Yeah, you got like a solid several months where it's just death after death after death. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, like you just get <laughs> Shinkai Man <laughs> gunned down November sixteenth, nineteen fifty four. Yeah, Sakai and his guys. Uh, they grab three Shinkai men and just blow them all away on the railroad tracks. November twentieth, uh, November twenty fifth. Two former Doi men <laughs> yep. gunned down. Death card. <laughs> Here lies the body of former Doi man. Yeah, <laughs> I I thought Shinkai Man kind of sounded like a name at first, like Shinkai Man. What? Like Maybe. oh, and then the next one was three Shinkai Men, and like oh okay, I see, I see. <laughs> right, right. And then uh, December sixth, Arita is trying to run a police blockade. He crashes, and he doesn't get killed. He gets arrested. Mm. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of honor here. <laughs> no. <laughs> but then December 11th, Shinkai himself gets stabbed to death while he's trying to leave town on the train platform. Yep. So that sort of solves things for a little bit. This is Shinkai is dead, so yeah, we can all kind of relax. Kind of, yeah. Kind of. The the thing about this, like all these crimes are done like just in broad daylight in front of everybody, not giving a fuck. Yeah, just complete public murder. Nobody really gives a shit. You know, they're on the train platform at a busy noon time. Uh, these these are all taking place on, like, railroad tracks and shit. Yeah. So all of this goes, you know, we, we've... Uh, years have passed, and finally Shozo gets paroled, because the prisons are too crowded. Yeah, <laughs> all right. We were going to give you the death penalty, but get out of here, kid. You probably learned your lesson. Yeah, it's like, whatever. Uh, You've been here longest. Yeah, and Yano comes to pick him up because he's the last person who's loyal to Yamamori. Everybody's kind of abandoned him at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Shoso's like, hey, guys, what I miss? Well, <laughs> let's have dinner. Yeah, Yamamori complains and complains about Sakai. Sakai started his own business. Everybody's turned their back on me. You're the <laughs> only one left. It's just like a very, this is probably his most performative crying bit. At this point, mm. everybody's pretty wise to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the wife says that, you know, talking, always talking about how great and wonderful Shozo is, it, it made Sakai all jealous and stuff. And Sakai <laughs> says he's going to kill you. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> just say, I mean, maybe you should take care of him because, you know, he, because we love you so much, he got all, you know, jealous of you. <laughs> That's why. Hey, so uh, when I got out of jail, there was this promise about the, you know, the, oh, well, uh, here's an envelope with 12,000 yen. Yeah, here's your pay stub. This is your monthly pay. Uh, you, you'll just pay for this dinner out of it, though. That you yeah. can take care of that. We're get, we're getting out of here. Just see it. Yeah, <laughs> just like <laughs> there might not even be enough money to cover the dinner. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, it's a big dinner. There's like six or seven people there. Yeah, and it's a fancy place. <laughs> and they're like, look, 
kill Shozo or kill Sakai for us. And he's like, you got to give me some time. I just got out of prison. Come on. Yeah, I got to think about this, man. He's kind of my buddy. And I'd also sort of like to figure out what's going on with everybody. Things are totally different from when I left. Everybody's dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he talks to uh, the, the I think it's Yano, who's the only one left there, who's like pretty embarrassed about Yamamori giving him such a bullshit pay envelope. It's like, the family's doing great financially. They're fine. Yeah. This isn't a problem. Yamamori yeah. just bought this boat race company. He's making money hand over <laughs> fist. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I can't believe he's not giving you anything. Like, <laughs> he's, is, he's lied. Yeah, that, that's just unbelievable. I, I'm kind of shocked. Even me. Yeah, like, like what, did he think you weren't going to find out that he owns a boat racing <laughs> business? I, it shows us, like, okay, I got to go talk to a few people and get the lay of the land. He goes to see Yamagata's wife, because... Yeah, yeah, Yamagata, she was the one who was pregnant and was uh, he was worried. So he goes right. and prays for him. And Sakai shows up because he married her. Yeah, so, um, hey, Shozo, this is awkward. And he says, yeah, see, the thing is, uh, when he was all worried about the wife being pregnant, he was actually my kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's my baby, not, not his. Listen, you know that Yamamori is dishonest and bad, right? I'm so disgusted by him that I can't work for him anymore. Shoza's like, yeah, I'm starting to see that, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of sent me to kill you. Oh, well, don't do that. Yeah, he's like, look, he said I'm supposed to kill you, and Sakai is actually pretty sure he's going to do it at first. Because like, he, he reaches into his pocket to get, I think, some matches or a cigarette? Uh, cigarettes. He's like, please, man, please don't. Oh, ha, ha, ha. And Shoza's like, look, Yamamori may not act like a good boss, but, I mean, he is kind of the boss right now, and we've got this doi problem, we've got all these issues. Let's just all band together, we'll we'll all be on the same side, we'll be able to rebuild, and we can survive this shit. Yeah, you guys guys obviously can't make it without my charts. Yeah, this isn't working. I'm going to go on a trip. I need... A vacation after prison. So you talk it over with Yamamori while I'm gone and just yeah. resolve this crap. <laughs> so Sakai goes to the boss's house in the <laughs> middle of the night to confront him. Yeah. It's like, I thought you were supposed to be dead. No, no, I'm I am through with your bullshit. You are going to retire. And I'm just going to uh, do my own thing. I'm taking over the business because you're an asshole. <laughs> and we, we cut to the next day and Yamamori announces his retirement at a party. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so retired. <laughs> it's like uh, Sakai is going to start this new awesome company. Uh, we'll, we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so during the celebration... Sakai learns that uh, he learns from Makahara, who by this point, this is where he starts to get real uh, Abe Vigoda in Godfather vibes, you know, near Mm -hmm. the end of that, you know, when he approaches Michael. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like that. Makahara's like, you know, Yano has gone to go talk to Kato about some shit. So, you know, he, that's going to be a problem. He's he's going to work with Kato. We're, we're going to have all of these issues. 
So we cut to February 18th, 1956. Uh-oh. Yano, our last loyal man to Yamamori, is killed in a drive-by shooting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was surprised to see a drive-by shooting in the 50s. Yeah, it's interesting. And Makahara calls up Shozo, who's still on vacation. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's like, we... Uh, so someone just shot Yano... We kind of need you to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, I'm on vacation. Like, man, I'm on vacation. Are you kidding me? He's like, yeah, just come see Yamamori. And he goes, he takes him to his boat race company where he's just hanging out as the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> he's got like a like a suit and a mustache now. Yeah, he looks like he's gone legit, basically. Mm-hmm. And Yamamori, you know, he he complains, he dresses him down. He's like, yeah. how dare you tell Sakai that I told you to kill him? <laughs> <laughs> I gave you an order. Remember when you used to follow those? It's your fault Yano's dead. And they're kind of trying to guilt him into killing Sakai for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if you really think about it, you're responsible for his death, so you should get revenge. <laughs> You have to make it right. And Shozo's like, I'm finished with you. You suck, man. (laughs) I'll give my own grudge against Sakai. You just go fuck yourself. Yeah, I am out of this shit. Like, ah, I can't believe how whiny you are. What a piece of shit. I hate you. (laughs) Yep. And Makahara, he draws on the map. Very familiar red writing with a circle to show where the guy's mistress lives. And she was like, huh. So it was you who read it out Wakasugi, isn't it? It's like, well, uh, mm, uh. That's in the past. Stop worrying about the past. Let's think about the future. Stop living in the past, man. Go kill Sakai for us. Yeah. <laughs> Whose side are you on? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he, uh, he goes, Shozo goes to Sakai's apartment. He enters, he gets ambushed and disarmed. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I did come to kill you, but not for Yamamori. I'm, I am done with that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I hate him. I agree with you. But listen, you and I are no longer brothers. Uh, and I'm just going to keep coming. So you better kill me. <laughs> yeah. Like, and so guy's like, look, this code of honor bullshit is so meaningless. Are you kidding me? don't you see how all of this shit has been working out we just have one fucking puppet master at the top Uh, nothing can be done unless you have control over reality but the chart though (laughs) exactly it's like look i I, i'm i'm cool with you you can be head of the new family i don't mind being second in command to you i i just don't want yamamori there this isn't about him or this is about him it's about revenge yeah. against him screw that guy come yeah. on <laughs> yeah so they they're driving and sakai is like i'm i'm so sick of this sick of all of it but shows us like look i'm warning you the hunter is stronger than the prey and uh sakai he's like all right fine you can go Here's your gun back. I, I'm, I can't kill you today. Some other day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sort of like the the emotional climax of the film because it's weird. I feel like, especially in a movie this short where 
it's sort of based on fact. It's kind of fictionalized, but not super fictionalized. Usually, I feel like you would combine the storyline of Wakasugi and Sakai into one character to kind of have more of that emotional resonance of these two buddies through all of it. Yeah, because I don't really fully understand why Shozo is upset with Sakai to begin with. No, I mean, it's sort of, it is sort of to do with Yano's death. I think he did kill Yano. Oh, okay. So Yano was still loyal. It's just, uh, or I mean, theoretically, Yano never did anything to Shozo anyways. Uh So I, I think it's sort of related to that. And again, it's the... It's it's part of his shipping charts. We don't see all of it. <laughs> right, of course. I mean you can't you can't put everything in this movie. There's no room. Right. So Sakai walks away and a couple dudes get out of a taxi and follow him. So February nineteenth, nineteen fifty six. Sakai he's he goes into this uh really crowded shop and is holding a doll and some the, the two guys shoot him to death. Yep. So this is sort of the concluding point of the movie. We get Shozo, or not Shozo, Sakai's funeral, which is lavish and bullshit. Well, yeah, yeah. Like, Okubo's there, everyone's all crying, and I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be an incredible climax scene. But there's 30 seconds left of the film. <laughs> yeah, and, and they, they've got just... You know, all of these guys have paid for these lavish plates uh, and uh, with their names on them to show that they yeah. paid for the funeral. And Shozo comes in and he he talks to the portrait of Sakai. It's like, are you happy with this show they're putting on? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, he's like, are you, are you happy with this? I'm not. Yeah, I'm sure not. And he takes out his gun and he just starts blowing away all the fucking lavish funeral crap. Yep. Just all, all of the boss's names on them. Yep. Just blasts all the decorations. Um, Yamamori steps up like, hey, and shows a looks at him. Yeah. And Yamamori, I've still got some bullets left, which feels like one of those Clint Eastwood lines in the Dollars trilogy. And everyone does back off. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Th- would this have come out before Dirty Harry? No. Well, okay. yeah, no, Dirty Harry, I think, is 71. So this is 73. Oh, okay. It yeah. does feel like a Clint Eastwood line, though. Yeah. And it is delivered in that sort of way. He's got the smoke and gun and everyone's like, oh, yeah, shit. <laughs> we really should stay away from this one guy who clearly has more honor and danger within him than anyone else. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, is the end of the movie. Yeah, the end. Freeze frame, movie over, go home. So fast, just like a freight train, this whole movie. Uh, it's the strangest structure for a huge sweeping gangster epic where just everything is just these tiny little violent shards of film. Yeah, like it really feels like everything is happening everywhere all at once. Yeah, it's so hectic. It's uh crazy there's so much violence there's so much bloodshed and it's we we understand why it happens but at the same time it doesn't happen for good reasons (laughs) so it it does feel random and violent because it is all sort of random and stupid it's just total chaos that they're finding themselves in Mm -hmm. and 
yeah, it's just set against the backdrop of this of Hiroshima, which is just getting pounded with shit, like right. happening to it. Yeah, I mean, it, the the bomb is very important, and just the the instability that that creates. You know, they're they're in the black markets. They're running all of the, you know, they're they're in all of these working battles with the military police at the start. Uh, yeah. You just don't see a whole lot of it because that's just their day to day. Yeah, yeah, like like that opening scene where like five different people die and we meet everybody. That's just Tuesday. Yeah, it was just an average day. This is like, okay, here's a good point to sort of establish the couple people who have a little bit of honor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but none of these battles get to have any of that. No, no no honor and humanity within these battles. Uh, very true to the name. And yet it feels like even though so much has happened and we've seen so much and done so much and so many people have died, it feels like we're we've just watched the pilot episode. Well, yeah, it's crazy. It's so fucking compressed. Uh, it, one of the things that's in this set, this is the arrow box of uh, the the whole Yakuza Papers Volume One, and one of the the discs is the TV version, which is all five of them compressed into one large TV movie. Oh. Oh I can't even God. imagine compressing this movie down any further, so I have no idea how much compressed this one is. Like, I think it's relatively long. Yeah, but even still, like, how would you... <laughs> how would you compress this at all? No, I'm I know, sure so. Right? I'm in jail. 12 years. Blood Brothers. Okay, I'm out. I'm Yamabori. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how that would work. And obviously, like, these are all heavily interconnected my understanding is the second one they started writing it while they were still in production on the first one because they're like we, we're just gonna keep putting these out they're gonna just hit and they did they were huge well yeah um you were saying like all eight of these movies came out over like a three-year period right so this one comes out in january 73 i think maybe three of them come out in 73 <laughs> That's amazing. Because, <laughs> like, all of them are out. Like, the, the first five come out through 73 and 74. And then the next series also starts in 74. And then it's just one more uh, in 75 and one more in 76 to complete the second trilogy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. There, There's so like I, I, I am. I, I can't imagine how much. Uh, is contained in all of these. It, it feels like it can't... Like, how does it sustain uh, so many movies when this goes all the way from 1945 to 1956? Like, we've got an entire decade in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think by the end of it, it's uh, 20, 2037, and Shozo is a space robot. I mean, you got to get into the future at some point, it feels like. You, you can't, if, it, my, I, I do think uh, Hiroshima Deathmatch is uh, considerably less hectic. I, I think it's one and three are really heavy on just tons and tons and tons of information. And mm. then the other ones, you sort of dig further into character and in specific instances or something. Okay. I'm not sure. Uh, but th that's the understanding I have. So the next one in this set is Hiroshima Deathmatch, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. 
I don't, awesome title. Oh, rad title. Uh, I don't know too much about that one specifically, other than that, you know, it's the continuation of this story. I think it adds another really famous real Yakuza who his real story didn't overlap with uh, the, the guy who the guy Shozo is based on. But they decided, like, well, this is another guy who wrote a memoir. Let's bring him in, have his story, and then we'll sort of interweave them. OK. Yeah. That sounds cool. Should be interesting. So we could either do that for our next one. And of course, you know, box set picks. We always have an alternative mm-hmm. unless we're just doing the box set. But this is uh, an actual stack. So uh, that versus Sambazanga. Bazinga. <laughs> Sambazanga. This is an Angolan movie from the 70s. Same year okay. as this. Or no, 72, actually. And it's about... It's a sort of during or like right around the Angolan Revolution independence movement. Oh, OK. Uh, from Portugal. So it's about uh, this lady. It's it's mainly uh, female focused. And uh, she's trying to locate her husband who's been wrongly arrested or I, I guess arrested as a revolutionary by uh, Portuguese authorities in Angola which is uh, in Africa, of course. Yeah, yeah. So it's mostly like a non-professional cast who are actually all real revolutionaries and stuff. Oh, neat. Yeah, so very political work, like uh, Mm -hmm. arguably a propaganda film. Okay, all right, cool. Well, I still want to see more Yakuza papers. Yeah, me too. These rule. (laughs) (laughs) I feel there's still so much more Shozo story to tell. Oh, definitely. And my understanding is he is the main character through all eight. Okay. Yeah, there's going to be quite a bit of stuff there. Cool. All right, so do you have any last thoughts on battles without honor and humanity uh, before we move on to part two? I should have the billionaire yachts. I should have all of them. Nobody wants to work anymore. He's a real nobody wants to work anymore type of guy. It reminds me of... Uh, you know, a, a recent other uh, shitty boss uh, from a Japanese film when we covered uh, the, the Sonny Chiba one. Oh, the Screaming Shogun. The, the Screaming Shogun. He's he's not unlike the Screaming Shogun in demeanor. Yeah, but I don't get sick of watching Yamamori do his no. thing, whereas the Screaming Shogun is like, OK, one scene was enough. Yeah, no the Screaming Shogun please. was irritating, whereas Yamamori, it is hilarious. Like, he, yeah. it's it's such a good performance. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I should shout, shout him out. Uh, Nobuo Kaneko is the guy who played him. Just a really <laughs> long-running actor. He's in uh, some really important, like, classic Akira Kurosawa stuff. Like, he's in oh. Ikiru. Okay. Uh, all, all sorts of shit. He's in some of the Zatoichi movies. We'll probably run into him there. Nice. I just can't wait to see the movie where Yamamori finally gets his. I know he's in all of them up to new battles. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think he had that much life in him. Shockingly. Yeah. And he's, he's in lots of stuff. Like he was in the fall of Akko castle, which, uh, you know, same director, of course. Yeah. And he's just one of those dudes who was in all sorts of stuff for years. Uh, as probably a lot of these guys are. I'm not familiar with many of them, but you know, pretty cool. All right, well, uh, let's head on to part two.
And we're back for part two, where we're talking about Body Parts, a 1991 film by Eric Bred. Uh, Body Parts is a film that, unlike uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, this one makes less sense the more you think about it. Oh, yeah, this one, uh, it's weird. It's a very strange, very zany movie, like silly at times. Uh, oh, yeah. Actively goofball. Um this is based on a 60s French novel. Oh, really? Uh, called, let's uh, see here, Et mon tout est un homme, uh, meaning, and my entirety is a man. Uh, the English title was Choice Cuts. It came out in 1965. Uh, interestingly, the same, uh, the, the writers also did the source material for Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh, interesting. Just Choice Cuts. Choice Cuts is a much better title than Body Parts. Choice Cuts is good. I don't know why they changed it to Body Parts, honestly. I mean, it's blunt. It, it is a movie about body parts. <laughs> it gets to the point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the original, it's by uh, Boileau Narc-Jacques, uh, for a very famous, very prolific French pulp novelist duo. Uh, a lot of movies based on their stuff, actually. Another really big one is Diabolique. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. That's a Clouseau. Oh. Uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau, who uh, we watched, what was it? Uh, let me think. We we covered Clouseau, I think. Was that um, uh, Jenny Lamour or? Yeah, yeah. Clouseau. Okay. Yeah, he, he directed uh, Quai d'Orfebvre. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So Diabolique was his next really big one from uh, 1955. Really crazy movie. Great movie. We'll totally have to watch it sometime. You dig it. Cool. This one is kind of all over the place. Um, it's zany. I, uh, yeah. This is, I, I should note, uh, written and directed by Eric Red, who was sort of a, a really hot screenwriter in the 80s. He wrote The Hitcher is awesome Rutger Hauer movie. Uh, not currently available in North America on Blue, uh, but oh. one that I'm actively, uh, you know, anytime someone's uh, hinting at something, it's like, oh, I hope it's The Hitcher. It's one <laughs> I've been really waiting for. Uh, weird dude, Eric Red. he actually himself, like, there's a lot of car accidents. Like, his, his movies are really car mayhem forward. The ones I've seen and uh, watched, because there's this one, of course, has a pretty crazy car crash at the beginning. The Hitcher is all, uh, you know, car chase stuff. Uh, he did Near Dark, the vampire movie, which is pretty great. He, he wrote it, didn't direct it. Cool. Do you know Near Dark? Have you seen that one? Uh, we've, I think we've discussed it, but no, I haven't actually watched it. Okay, really cool movie. It's uh, Catherine Bigelow, her... Uh, vampire western and like set in the present day it's pretty right cool. uh cool. i recall there's some stuff with that but so eric red in 2000 crashed his truck into a bar into a bar yeah uh, resulting in two deaths oh. uh and then he tried to kill himself by slitting his own throat with a piece of the glass from uh the, the incident, but uh, he, he did survive. So it sounds like he just lived 
one of his movies. Yeah, it's crazy. He kind of had just sort of a the the same. Like I don't think he's really done much since then. Uh, he's I, maybe I guess he's directed. He did the remake of The Hitcher, or no? I guess that's just him credited as the writer on it. Uh, so he's written some stuff, but I don't think he's really. Oh yeah, he directed a TV movie in 2015. Okay. But yeah, it, it sort of uh, really kind of uh, halted his career. But he he did a lot of very interesting stuff in the 80s and early 90s. Mm. Uh, there's another one that I have of his that I haven't watched yet called Bad Moon, which is his werewolf movie. Okay. Might uh, be fun. It's uh, made in Canada, I think. All right. Could be mm. all right. Um, so this one starts with scary music playing over just black and red uh, images, medical diagrams of the human body. It's sort of and, like the poster art. The, yeah. You know, the, the limbs and all the veins and arteries connecting them. Yeah, and and it's all sounds and looks really sinister, but it's so long. <laughs> Yeah, this this movie is really oddly paced. It's got like really wacky stuff at the beginning, at the end, but the middle is just like it's just him finding out that his replacement arm came from a serial killer and basically sulking about it. It it takes a long time. He's the least interesting character in the movie, and he's the biggest wet blanket. It, it's kind of a, a weird thing where. Everybody else with the uh, stolen or the the serial killer limbs is having a great time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a few. There's a couple of issues, but mostly it's worked great for them. This one, it's done nothing. Like, it's done absolutely nothing for him. Uh, it, it doesn't serve any purpose to his work, whereas both of the others, it's totally key to their uh, general way of life. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, because his work, he's a psychologist, a... Among a, so he appears to be both a teacher and a prison psychologist. I I would have to assume that he uh, works as a university prophet. He you know, he has a doctorate and he uh, does symposiums and stuff, but mainly he is like he his very specific nature is he's a psychologist who works with like guys on death row. So <laughs> specifically convicted murderers seems to be the only thing he does. So. I don't know, maybe there's not that much everyday use for his psychology work. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. But uh, we open with him doing his psychology, prison psychology stuff on this patient. Right. I totally thought when I, I was watching it that this guy was going to be the body donor. I thought so, too. But this guy just. But then he shows up later and he's scared of him because he has the tattoo. Yeah, yeah. This guy this guy doesn't do actually a whole lot of anything. He's in two scenes um, where he basically rants about how psychologists are useless. Well, he's, he's talking about how he doesn't get him. And then when he comes back and he does get him, he's afraid of him and won't talk to him. Yeah. His only reason to exist basically is to not talk to our main character for various different reasons, depending on the scene. Well, he only um, has the two. Yeah, well. Okay, two different reasons, depending on the scene. This one, he's just like, hey, what is even the point? Even if you fix me, I'm on death row, I'm going to fry. What are you even doing here? Well, and, and it's also a matter of, like, and can you actually make me not want to kill people? Yeah. Like, like, well, no, not really. I mean, you know, it's just I, I'm interested in you. You're fascinating. Yeah. 
and he's like and he just starts freaking out he's like fix me doc fix me god damn it it's it's an early element of how elevated this movie is it's weird that it has this whole midsection where it's pretty quiet and not a lot is happening where you're just kind of spending time with him and his family where he's yeah. just not doing a very good job no he's uh yeah he he doesn't adjust well <clears throat> No, and I don't know if he was doing well to begin with, because you don't really get any impression of him prior to this, because it's like right after uh, our first introduction to him with this stuff that he gets in that hilarious and incredible car accident. It's <laughs> very intense, but it's bizarre and it's ridiculous. It doesn't seem like he could walk away from it. No, and we do get one scene of him with his wife where he's like, man, I went to the prison and talk to the guy again and he has a good point just once i wish my psychology stuff could be used to fix somebody just right. once but i've never seen it happen yeah it does kind of maybe seem like uh eric red perhaps as the screenwriter uh, doesn't have the most love for psychology as a practice it, it doesn't seem to have much respect for it there, there's no point at which his psychology is useful in the movie no and he just completely and people call about on his stuff too like you're a psychologist how can you think that an arm is giving you murder impulses how, right how although does, he's right <laughs> he does end up being right is the thing yes and it is the bad guy saying this to him and you know uh he, yeah he's got the molder armor of yeah he is the one with the most absurd point of view but it happens to be in a universe where that point of view is correct so mm. we, we kind of have to adjust our expectations accordingly. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny how you mentioned that about the psychologist, because I had in my notes right here, like, this film really does take some interesting views about mental health and the nature of evil. Yeah, it, it's, uh, well, just the whole thing, I, I presume this comes from the original French text of the uh, evil dwelling within the flesh feels like an old school horror concept. And it feels really weird in a 1991 movie where a main character is a psychologist. Yeah. This feels like it comes from that era of 90s, early to mid 90s movies that are just dark and edgy about trying to understand the nature of evil. But this one, I think, is kind of like a joke about it. Yeah. Energy wise, the movie that it most reminds me of has to be The Borrower. Oh, you know, yeah, very, very similar to that. Very similar. The movie um, we covered quite a while back. Uh, so about, long and, ago with the dog head. <laughs> oh, the borrower dog, my animal of the year in last year's tax <laughs> awards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the borrower being an alien who uh, his head explodes when he gets to Earth. So he just keeps stealing new heads and then replacing them when they start <laughs> to rot. Uh, highly recommended. Great time. <laughs> Lots of fun. This is very similar, um, especially the way the killer just bursts into the scene the same way that the dog head guy does. Yes, yes. When he finally shows up at the end, it's uh, so insane. Like, it really kicks into high gear when he shows up and you have that chase scene, the, the police <laughs> the car, the two scene. police cars chase. Ah, <laughs> oh, wild. Like something out of the Fast and the Furious it's great. I mean, impressive stunt work throughout this movie. It's it's strangely stunt-based for a horror movie. Mm. Speaking of uh, stunt work and The Fast and the Furious, 
uh, on his way to work, we have the car accident. <laughs> right. So the the back wheel of the he's he's in the left lane and there's a guy in the right lane just a little ways ahead and he wants to pass this guy but the 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 right the the rear left wheel keeps uh shaking it looks like it's gonna come off and you know fucking comes off it comes off and uh yeah he rear ends the guy uh but manages not too bad no he he stops he's about to survey the damage but there's a semi coming screaming up behind him slams on the brakes way too late um and crush it's it's such an incredible sequence because we we just cut to the outside of his car and we see him come through the windshield and just slow-mo just glass uh glittering everywhere and then bounces off the other car (laughs) yeah he's like he's launched up vertically from his car because of how the semi hits it he's launched up as if through a cannon out of the windshield like straight upwards and then yeah lands on the car bounces off and then down into the the concrete where we don't see him which how is he getting away I, i can't believe he just lost an arm yeah, that's the thing. Everything else about him is completely fine, but his arm oh. comes off. Yeah, no, not like a, the slightest issue. He has a scar on his lip that it, yeah, might have been there before. It is unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I think that might just be a standard Jeff Faye scar. I think that might yeah. be in his other films as well. Uh, Jeff Faye, I don't know, he's uh, probably best known for Lost these days. Okay. Uh, but he was a lawnmower lost. man. Oh. <laughs> the law, I lost, I only ever watched a couple episodes. It wasn't for me. <laughs> so, yeah, and, like, the way, it's just so crazy the way this semi-truck and the car, like, the car that had the wheel fall off just managed to crush him in between. And, yeah, it's it's so over the top. It's absurd. Yeah, no, it's it's a cartoon kind of thing. Uh, it's it's like you know he hits a rock or something, and he's in a car, and then you know a train hits him from behind, and it turns into an accordion, and he shoots out like the cork <laughs> from a wine bottle, and then like bounces, and then you know he, they they roll him up at, like a newspaper or like a poster because he's just like a splotch on the ground. It it feels like that kind of energy and it's a good place to start this movie. You kind of wish it maintained that all the way through cuz it really hits it by the end and it's sort of jarring by the time you get there. Yeah, cuz like from here on the movie kind of well, we we do get a few interesting sequences, but the movie mostly slows to a crawl after this. Well, you first have the surgery sequence, which is a really crazy, bizarre nightmare where he, he... Oh, the surgery sequence when you're high is insane. It's incredible. Cause, so, and that's basically right where we go. Because first, it, it's uh, the the evil doctor, who we don't know is evil yet, uh, saying to the wife, you have to sign this right now so we can uh, transplant an arm onto him. There's no time to wait. There's no time. There's no time. You don't even have time to read it. Just sign or we can't save your husband. <laughs> Yeah, so she's forced to sign it, and then we go yep. into the crazy... It's almost like it's a dream sequence, the way it plays out, and we are seeing it from uh, Bill, our main character's point of view, where... Yeah, <laughs> kind of like a fisheye lens. Not a fisheye lens, but something weird. Uh, yeah, like a... It might be fisheye, uh, or... 
something like that. But yeah, it, it's it's got a, a strange uh, distortion to it, and they bring in the prisoner. They they just it, before anything else, they just buzz his head off. <laughs> yeah, they they have like all these armed nurses with shotguns, who I assume are not really nurses so much as they're with the prison. Uh, well, we do find out at least one of them is the cop. Right. Well, I mean, more than one of them can't be the cop, but, you know, yeah. one of them is a cop. Yeah, I would figure ha- most of them would have to be. And then <laughs> I, I love <laughs> the best part. The best part for me is absolutely that you have the the TV readout. Yeah, with like the little diagram of the man. <laughs> and the head just floats off <laughs> as we see the the buzzsaw like cut through the neck and they lift the head off and it just drifts over it, it just sort of like drifts off like a balloon it's incredible like in in the animation on their like monitor yeah <laughs> like i'm expecting like a little like, I'm expecting the medical equipment to just do a little midi it's so silly. It, it does feel like an animation from a video game. You know, it's it's like what you should see when uh, fucking Shadow Warrior cuts someone's head off. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and there's like blood everywhere. The, yeah, he's he's not uh, he doesn't get put unconscious at all. He's under an anesthetic, but he's awake through the whole thing and watching the whole thing happen. No, no, he's he is awake to see the head getting cut off and then they put him back under it's like i think he he wasn't supposed to be awake and uh, they realize he's seeing it and they uh someone comes and puts the mask back on and then he goes to sleep for surgery waking up in mid-surgery is uh that's not something you want it's scary although he doesn't wake up during his own surgery he wakes up during uh the other guy's head yeah with like this huge buzz saw and she's got like blood splattered yeah, on her face no it's like a circular saw and uh, yeah just lifting the head away we don't really get much of a look at him but it doesn't matter because he will ultimately show up again in yeah. the last act but i mean he's not a character no he's a well we'll, we'll see <laughs> so he wakes up the next day in this huge body cast setup and we see all this blood on his arms soaking through the bandages. Right. So this is one of the weird things with the arm is it's so mangled. <laughs> it is gross. It's very Frankenstein-y. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense because it's just from the one guy. Well, it, it does kind of make sense that they'd have to make all these incisions and stuff. Because the way the tendons work is if they right. get sne- severed, they're like a rubber band. They'll just snap back to uh, back to wherever they're hooked up to in this case would be the head i guess so yeah they'd have to like make all these incisions and like fish the tendons through to reattach them to his don't ask me how and why i know all this (laughs) but yeah that's that's my explanation for the scars also yeah to make it look really gross because it's a monster head well because it doesn't they're they're just they're they're all equidistant it's like they're it's 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 more like halloween costume than anything it's got mm-hmm. that kind of flavor where it's you know a pattern of uh, uh of 
makeup you know it's like okay well yeah. we'll put one here we'll put another one here we'll put another you know we've got to have enough coverage so in every shot you're going to see some of it could also be the killer marking off all his victims with scars Don't well know. the other see the other thing is that the other guy when we see brad durf he doesn't have that oh yeah so i i that <laughs> completely invalidates your argument <laughs> but the leg guy does the leg guy does okay yeah. Oh, yeah, and we see the leg guy actually still doing his rehab. I guess it's a lot more work with the two legs. Yeah. Although yeah. They, they become super legs all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Look, there's I, I no logic to any of this. <laughs> like, the more you think about it... Very the, haphazard. The more you think about it, the more it falls apart. This guy would have had to have been Superman. Yeah, no, it, it, it is a weird thing where just... Uh, you can think of maybe a bit of an explanation, but then something else comes along. It's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. That that doesn't work. Yeah, like halfway through the movie, <laughs> the villain's plan just changes completely without any notice, uh, among other things. So as he's getting he, – so he's going through his rehab. He's trying to learn how to move the arm again and everything, and he's struggling so hard with it, trying to lift like this little five-pound weight. Until suddenly his arm just jerks up and then now suddenly he's amazingly good with the arm right so, after that. So my understanding is I guess he's the first recipient because he like actually saw the guy get cut up, right? Yeah. It's not really clear how long it is where, uh, that Brad Dourif has had his. His whole story is, you know, it, it throws a spanner in any kind of theory of this movie. Yeah, I mean, him and the leg guy got their stuff at least a little bit after. Uh, but it can't be too much later, because it's not that much time altogether for this movie. No, no, um, it's it's really unclear, because Brad, Brad Dourif uh, has had time to become a super famous artist. Right, well, he's just kind of like an overnight phenomenon as well. Yeah. But again, like, he presumably got it later because he he's unknown whereas uh bill has a whole press conference when they let him out of the hospital and it's like big news yeah he has a press conference like hey wow you got the, like this whole we could just transplant human arms on you now that's i didn't know this was even in the works is this going to affect your sex life and he's like hey yo uh don't pay attention to me i'm just a patient here's the doctor pay attention to her and she's like oh no don't do that well, one of the other things, I'm pretty sure when they all go out, when when you see, like, the big crowd of journalists and shit, doesn't one of them have a flag, or, like, maybe it's the crowd has a flag that refers to the serial killer, which suggests to me that all of his, the shit that he ultimately uncovers doing his detective work so is already all public knowledge, isn't it? <laughs> I never noticed this flag, but that would be hilarious. I'm pretty sure there's a flag that says Fletcher on it, which is like, yeah. what the fuck is it? Because I, I took a note of it, because I was like, what the hell is that? And then, uh, you know, later it turns out to be Charlie Fletcher. I was like, okay, well, what's the fucking guy? <laughs> but why, yeah, why would it be public knowledge? I don't know, because, well, that's, it's one of those things where it makes sense as just a quick fix in the moment. It makes sense there, because... Uh, people are, or it makes sense sort of retroactively because, you know, that they're using serial killers, they're, they're using these serial killer body parts is 
more of a big deal than just generally that there is this transplant. Mm-hmm. Like, but, it's not anything to do with Bill. No one cares about Bill. And no, they as far not. as we know, neither of the other guys have any kind of press conference. You'd think you'd get one for the basketball star. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, <clears throat> he's he's apparently been legless for years before the surgery happens. And yet neither of them have any sort of big press presence the way Bill does. And the uh, painter became a star. He should have got a press conference just for that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't line up. None of it really lines up. But I think <laughs> initially it's supposed to be that they know that they're from this guy, Fletcher, because they bring Fletcher into the hospital here with a heavily armed presence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, the doctor's basically like, no, no, don't actually ask me about anything about the procedures. I have no information for you. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, but... the doctor is obviously sinister right from the beginning, right from when she forces the uh, oh. the 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 forms on the wife. Yeah, on the poor wife. Yeah, like, oh no, definitely just fill these out without reading them. I'm not up to anything sinister. It's just experimental treatments. Well, like, also just in the sense that she hasn't had a chance to talk to him about the arm, and does he even necessarily want to undergo some sort of experimental surgery to get an arm which doesn't have any purpose in his work? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, he's never been asked about it. He just kind of wakes up and it's like, surprise, you have a new arm. And he's not happy about it. And like, as it will turn out, bodily autonomy is a big deal to him. And he doesn't want this arm. And he keeps being like, take this arm off me. I don't want this arm. <laughs> yeah, take this arm off of me. Maybe this also is why the uh, the uh, the arm just doesn't work out for him. And that it's such a mistake. Like, it's destroying his home life. Could be. It, it starts out good, at least on the first day. Uh, he's able to play football with his kid. Play um, a catch? Play a catch, yeah. <laughs> Let's go have a catch, son. Yeah, oh, I love really, it. father? I can't believe it. It's like a, a you know, frail Victorian child. It's like, oh, Uncle Scrooge, really? <laughs> they, you know, they, they go throw the football around. Yeah. <laughs> the kids are very interested in the new arm because it's gross and disturbing. Yeah, yeah. They're like, can I see it? And then he shows them and the daughter's like, oh, it's so gross. It's okay, Dad. I still love you, though. <laughs> and like, the son's like, oh, I guess I'm glad. Yeah, it's pretty gross, though, Dad. <laughs> You've got a less gross one. I mean, it seems like he could have because Brad Dourif seems to have. It, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> Somehow he just got the worst of all of it. I, I, part of it, I guess, is as well as that he's the only one with a family, so he has more people constantly around him for the arm to interact with, I guess. Yeah, I bet Brad Dourif's character doesn't have a lot of friends. It doesn't seem so. He's very surprised when anybody shows up at his door. When Bill shows up, like, uh, hi. <laughs> what, are you a person? <laughs> are you a, some kind of policeman? I, I don't... Why would anyone be here? <laughs> so the first sign that something is wrong is when he's trying to give a lecture at the university about uh, the nature of violence and how... 
it's basically like a Joker speech. It's like, well, state sanctioned violence is okay, but individual violence isn't. Well, we need to explore that very, very, very deeply. And as he's saying this, he gets like flashbacks to some murders and stuff that's going on. Oh yeah, so that's that's a running thing. The arm, the arm <laughs> stores the memories. <laughs> the arm gives him memories of the serial killings which it performed. Yeah, because the guy um, killed with his hands. Like okay, muscle memory is a thing, but <laughs> this. <laughs> The, the the you know I understand him like randomly attacking people more than I understand the flashback images. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't get that. It's that is really bizarre, and I guess we're supposed to take it that it's sort of the uh, psychic residue from the serial killer still being alive somewhere. Like I guess he's at this point a head in a jar, or no, maybe they've already put him on that other guy's body because they put him on another body. Anyway. Yes. It's I, not clear the it, timeline but, of the other limbs. Right. But it's, uh, you know, he's still controlling the limbs sometimes. So it's psychic impulses from him that there is like a connection between them. I mean, that's given as much credit as I possibly can. Well, it's more of an explanation than the movie gives. And the next sign of trouble is when he's shaving in the morning and he like just carves his face open with the razor blade. Like, yeah, just digs into cut. his cheek. Sorry? Yeah, gives him a real bad cut. So he goes to work to work with the convict again. And this same is... guys before. Yeah, this same guys. terrified by him. Well, not at first. At first, he's like, hey, man, you look like shit. You look kind of like me now. Like, you got a little devil inside you. I think I can trust you and uh, and all that stuff. And, yeah, so he goes to shake his hand and finds out that he's got... The same death row tattoo that he has that you can only get on death row. How do you have that, man? How do you? This is fucked up, man. Uh, You're a psychologist on death row? That's so weird. Oh, man, stay away from me, man. I mean, it it seems like the guy is just, I mean, maybe this is how he ended up on death row is he just has really poor impulse control and uh, just (laughs) maybe. This just like totally blew his mind and scared the shit out of him. It's, It's like a deer. Uh, the the way a deer reacts to something or a horse, because mm-hmm. uh, it's just like, uh, well, I I lost my arm and had a transplant. It, it, this this could be cleared up in an instant. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the guy even knows because he saw him on the news. Yeah. So he knows about the transplant. Right. He but... knows about the transplant. It doesn't make any sense. Why would he react that way? Especially <laughs> when he's looking at him, he's like, oh man, I I see how you kind of remind me of me. And I guess it's maybe that he's vibing that it's the <laughs> that he realizes that the arm is now controlling him, but that's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I, like my initial read <laughs> when I was watching the movie is that I thought he was going to be related to the other guy, that he knew the other dude and was frightened of him specifically. But now it's just he's yep. just freaking out. Yeah, just freaking out. <laughs> Don't think about it too hard or you'll You'll never make sense of it. <laughs> so he goes to the police station. He's like, all right. All right, buddy. Take my I need you to take my prints. And he's like to his cop. I guess he has a cop friend. And the guy's like, why do you want me to take your prints? OK, since I guess you haven't watched the news ever, I have a transplanted arm and I want to know who it's from. 
Right. So it's this guy, Charlie Fletcher, a serial killer who has been executed. <laughs> I love that the executed is in like blinky letters on the computer screen. Executed. Executed. So he killed like 20 people. Yeah. And Bill is just like freaking out about it for most of the rest of the movie. Like, how could one man kill 20 people? How could anyone do that? That's just. How could somebody do that? I'm a psychologist and I've never heard of serial killers before. Well, it's weird because he seems to specifically work with death row people on and serial yeah. killers. So it doesn't like, again, I don't really understand what uh, has freaked him out so much about it other than he doesn't want the arm. Yeah, and he doesn't want the arm. That's his thing. He doesn't want the fucking arm. That's <laughs> really all it is. Yeah, he's like having dreams about murder and he talks to his wife about it and she's like, no, you just have his arm. You don't have his personality. Why Why do you think this is a possibility? Well, it is a weird thing where just nobody will believe him. Yeah. <laughs> Even when he, like, and it's pretty soon that he runs into Brad Dourif because, you know, he, he goes to the hospital and uh, looks at the chart and finds the other two guys. Yeah, after confronting the doctor and being like, hey. Take off this uh, arm. I don't want it. Oh, no, not this time. He, oh, right. Yeah, he confronts nice. the doctor a few times. But this time he's like, hey, uh, the arm's making me go evil. You didn't tell me it was a serial killer. And she's like, why would That's that matter? Stupid. It's an arm. <laughs> it's like, You're a psychologist. Don't you realize that's a dumb plot? That's a dumb plot. And he he happens to look. I, I think maybe uh, the legs guy is already working out there yeah, at the time. Yeah, right? he, yeah, he, and he looks at the chart. He looks at the chart and looks at the legs guy. We do see the legs guy's legs, and they're fucked up like his arm is. Right. And yeah, he looks at the chart to get the names of all the people who have also got limbs from this Charlie Fletcher guy. So there's him, there's the leg guy, and there's Brad Dourif, the painter guy. Remo Lacey, and uh, the, the, the guy with the legs is Mark Draper. Right, yes, Mark Draper, who, in my opinion, is the best actor in the whole film. And, really? Hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get to why in a little bit. But first we have to meet uh, the painter. He he gets the painter's address from the chart and just shows up at his apartment. Right. He he shows up at his place and uh, it's Brad Dourif and he's really edgy. He's like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I should let you in. What, what is this I got, about? I got my arm from the same place you got your arm. He's uh, like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> and it's a serial killer. Oh, all right. Well, here, look at these incredible paintings I've been doing and making a shitload of money off of. So all of these paintings are based on the same flashes of violence that our guy has been seeing, that Bill has yeah. been having his nightmares of. And he's like, I've been seeing these, too. These are from this guy. But Bill's like, I mean, yeah, OK, maybe that's the truth. That sounds stupid, though. I don't believe it. Also, it's a whole thing about where does creativity come from and you don't know anything about that. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah. So he starts freaking out. I was like, these aren't your images. These are from the killer. These are the killer's images. They're not yours. And the guy's like, okay, well, if you have all these same in uh, images, why don't you paint some shit? Right. I mean, he doesn't have talent. It, it, is, well, the, yeah. it is them kind of constantly rubbing his nose in it that for whatever reason, everybody else is doing great with the, the <laughs> new limbs and it just... He's doing a real shit job of it. He is not making the most out of these new limbs. No. 
and he just keeps calling out people like, why does nobody want to ask questions about the procedure? Because it's fucking working great for us. Yeah, I got a new arm. I am making bank. I, I like I just made shitty paintings that sold at like hotel ramadas before, you know? I, I, yeah. Now I'm actually getting gallery showings. I have hype. So then he goes to track down uh, the foot, the the basketball guy, and man, it's working out great for him. <laughs> oh, dude's like doing freaking Michael Jordan slam dunks. Although uh, he's he's killing it. Yeah, uh, him just him doing. It's one of the funniest moments of the movie to me is that like we've seen just everything. I think it's already at a point where we had that bit where he hits his kid. Oh. um... No, that's a bit later. Is that still later? That's still uh, later, yeah. Because he has, he, he like he has been uh, had a bad attitude and things have just not been going well with his home life. And there is the bit where he hits his kid, uh, yeah. and because uh, like they're just play fighting, and then he gets bumped, and then the arm smacks the kid. Maybe. Yeah, they're, well, they're play fighting, but like. The kid is, like, jumping off of the top of the couch and, like, elbow-dropping him. <laughs> off the top like, ropes. Yeah. <laughs> By God, it's a slobber knocker. Yeah, but, I mean, also, he's a little kid. <laughs> yeah. So you don't, um, you don't hit him back. Uh, but uh, <laughs> then he comes to this fucking guy, and he, he's already seen the rich painter, and things are just going great there. Yeah. And then he comes to this guy, and... He's got his experimental limbs and it's like looking like they might be shaking. Then he just, you know, does a super jump and he fucking slam dunks it. And like, <laughs> man, come on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. No. So good for everybody else. Yeah. OK. Hitting the kid actually does happen right before he goes to sure. the basketball guy. Yeah. 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 And it's basically a flash. The wife is like, your arm can't make you do anything that you don't want it to. <laughs> Yeah, but I didn't want to hit the kid though, so it must be the arm is evil. Then the wife's just like, "I'm sick of your shit, honey." Well, she's—I mean, in any other movie, she'd be right. It's stupid. Yep. He—he's yes. wrong. Like, why is it working so great for everybody else, but he is just being an asshole to his family? <laughs> I—what is it that makes him different? Maybe it's because he kind of sucks too. Yeah, that's my thinking. It's yeah. It just seems to be it's a pre-existing condition that the, <laughs> the 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 new arm is exacerbating. Yeah, yeah. So after the basketball thing, where the guy just dominates the court, uh, he's driving home with uh, <laughs> with Bill following. The big man's him. going to the basket. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane how much air he's getting. It's like a ruler. It really is. <laughs> But the dude's legs go crazy. Oh, my God. My cat's going crazy. Cat's got crazy legs. Got those body parts. Uh, Even in the flesh. (laughs) She's going to be a serial killer now. He loses control of his legs and they cause him to run at red light because he got hit with a sudden bout of gotta go fastitis. Yeah. The legs just decide to start weaving in and out of traffic and he's not controlling the car for a while. And Bill sees it. So he tracks him down. He's like, hey. Yeah, so here's why I think the leg guy is the best actor in the whole movie. Just because of how he plays this whole freak out. Like, he's just had, like, this harrowing experience where his leg, he lost control of his legs, he almost died, and now this weirdo is, like, saying, hey, I've just been stalking you for the last bit, your legs belong to a serial killer. And he's, like, trying to play off 
trying to appear normal to this weirdo who knows about his past. He's like, oh, it's your arm is probably because of the rehabilitation. And you're just not used to it like me with the legs. But like clearly freaked out. I, I just thought this was a really good bit. Yeah, I thought he was fine. I, I didn't really think he was... Uh, he he did not stand out to me exactly. I don't know him from much other stuff, although he was uh, the the police officer in the Seinfeld episode where Kramer is believed to be a serial killer. Oh, uh, I, I don't remember that one. Oh, uh, I, it was like a two-parter. Uh, that was like a season finale. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember now. But yeah, yeah, this uh, the the basketball guy. He was the 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 guy who was investigating Kramer as a serial killer in that. Ultimately, the way the conversation ends is the basketball guy's like, "Dude, I got I legs. To, <laughs> I have legs. I used to not have legs. Yeah, they're a little walk. glitchy, but come on, man. I can walk again. I would like to get on with my life now. You should do the same, buddy." Right. So, it, I mean, just things keep not working for Bill. Bill yeah. continues to have problems with the arm. <laughs> yeah. But no one well, else seems to really be having to this degree. <laughs> so, yeah, here's where he uh, strangles his wife in her sleep. Right. They're lying in bed together and he just the arm just creeps over and starts strangling her. Mm -hmm. And then we basically smash cut to him with the kids as like, daddy has to go away for a little while. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> this is when he goes to the doctor. He's like, I want you to take the arm off. I don't like this. This is, this is not helping me in any way. Yeah. Can't you see the arm is killing me? And she's like, yeah, but I don't actually care because my name's going to be in the medical journals. Well, her and whole thing is, yeah, she she really cares. Well, that's a lie, too. It, it's, yeah. it isn't about the medical journals. It's more about... She is in with the serial killer for question mark? I don't really get it. Yeah, see, her plan makes zero sense. I like I I assume it's this thing where she has a relationship with this uh Charlie Fletcher guy, but we don't really get enough of it to figure out what it is. No, we, we don't have a clue, but whatever we know that whatever it is, she's not going to take the arm off and she's like no this is too important this is too great of an achievement and i'm not going to let you threaten it by being a weirdo or whatever well yeah i mean it's it's it, it from her perspective if she were not crooked it would totally make sense it's like i'm not gonna remove your working arm just because you have psychological problems uh yeah. you go see a psychiatrist you are yourself a psychologist. You should be able to find some way to deal with that. And yeah. through the movie, it does make sense the way she's reacting to him, because every time he comes to her, he is saying completely absurd bullshit that through his own expertise, he should know is absurd bullshit. It's just yeah. that ultimately it turns out that she was in the wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah, he basically is just like, well, if you won't take the arm off, go fuck yourself. Fuck you and all your fucking bullshit. And the, like, those are actual quotes that he says. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, I got to go drinking with the other body parts crew. They're the only ones who will un who understand me, even though they actually don't understand me at all and don't see why I have such a problem with this. They don't even agree with him. No, he's like... He's still going off drinking with them. He's like, how could one man kill so many people? It's like, dude, 
He's dead. Who cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter. His arm isn't him. <laughs> this is stupid. <laughs> yeah, you're just acting like a fucking weirdo, man. Just become like an arm superstar like the rest of us. Yeah, do something with it. I, what do you want? And then a big bar fight breaks out. <laughs> yeah, bar It's like, I want to see the hand that was on the TV. That guy is weird. Also, <laughs> again... It, 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 it speaks to what I was talking about earlier, how for some reason it's only Bill who had a press conference and was on TV, even though both of the other guys seem to have a lot more going for them from the donated limbs. And they're yeah. and like, I'll show you my arm. It's the exact same one as the yeah. other side. Yeah, it's like, why didn't the superstar artist who got like a revival after an experimental surgery... Why didn't he get a press conference? He did something with the the arb. Also, I would, it, it, per to you uh, describing uh, uh, Mernick as the best actor, uh, basketball guy, I would have to say that the drunk who approaches him is the worst actor in the film. Mm. <laughs> no, I want to see only that guy's arm kind of stuff. Like, just, it's so crappy. Yeah. Like, I just want to see your arm. It's like very, very silly. Yours is the one that was on the TV. Yeah. I mean, you, you can only do so much with the dialogue, but it's also a very stupid, drunk, flat delivery. It's, <laughs> it's so bad. It's cartoonish. Again, it's Bugs Bunny. And this movie gets very Bugs Bunny by the end. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're almost to the Bugs Bunny shit. Yeah. Uh, so a big bar fight breaks out. Bill, Bill accidentally punches, his arm accidentally punches Mark, who, who defends himself with a karate kick that just sends him flying. (laughs) His limbs are fighting each other. Yeah, sends him flying into the cop who doesn't arrest anybody. Bill just like takes out a bunch of dudes. He starts strangling a guy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, but the cop's just like, okay, well. What the, or yeah, no, he's talking to the cop. He's the cop's like, what the fuck happened? And Bill's like, I'm tired. Do you have any more questions? And the cop's like, yeah, what happened? <laughs> what the hell was that? It's like, it is my arm. It's my haunted arm. It's like, you know what? I don't have any more questions. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Come on. <sighs> so this is when everything just suddenly goes fucking insane. Because Mark goes home and his legs stop working. Yeah, his legs stop working, and he hears, hears, he phones Bill, who is somehow not at the police station, but at the hotel that he's been staying at. Well, because I would have to assume that he went straight into his haunted arm dealio, and the cop was like, no, forget you. (laughs) Fine, you're an idiot. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably it. (laughs) Yes, yeah, so he phones he phones Bill, and as he's calling him, he hears something in his apartment. So Bill races over. And <laughs> he finds him. Both of his legs are gone. His legs are wicked gone, bro. Uh, it's, it is a very silly, like, he throws open the door, and there's, like, he is dead, and just there's just uh, bloody stumps where the legs are supposed to be. Yep. And I I initially, because you, you hear a sound in the apartment, so obviously it's someone taking it, but I liked, I, I was kind of hoping 
the whole movie that it was just that the legs ran off on their own <laughs> that they left him behind. Because yeah, it could totally just, fit in this movie. They just get up and walk away. <laughs> They're just like, we're done with you. We got other plans. We're super legs. <laughs> Those legs were literally carrying him as a basketball player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Now it's the painter's guy's turn to get caught. <laughs> He's like his, spl- <laughs> his arm comes out way too easy. <laughs> yeah, he's just splattering red paint all over the place, and he hears a sound. We still don't really see the assailant, but the assailant grabs him and throws him out the window, and is just grabbing onto his one arm, <laughs> which is like yeah, comes it, right it, off. It's too easy. It's it is funny because I guess we're supposed to get that he is like ripping it off because he puts a foot on the shoulder and he's pulling it up, but it comes off like it's gelatin. It just like <laughs> it, it yeah, makes like, like a, a gross noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he falls down and he lands on the cop car that just knew to be there. Yeah, just well, just we we saw the car arriving, and I think it is with Bill. And oh, that's right, the cop it's, from it's before. Bill and the cop. And he goes right through the windshield and lands on them with just like the big bloody stump face forward. Like, ah! And the cop's like, it's okay, Bill. You're safe with me. And Bill's like, I'm not safe. I'm next. He is next. He is next. As they're driving away, we (laughs) finally get to see him. Uh, Charlie Fletcher is this dude with like this neck brace. So he looks like he's like a giraffe. Well, he's on a different body because we know his torso, I think, is still back at the lab, right? His torso is back at the lab. His head is on a different body. So these are all different. Like, his just his his head on some other body that he's like, okay, let's load me up on someone. I got to go get my limbs back. And this moment or just this stunt sequence is probably the coolest part of the movie where he slips the cuffs on him. Yeah, he slips the cuffs on him. Like, he drives up right next to Bill, who's in the police car, and slips the cuffs on both of them. So they're like, arms are dangling out the window. And if it was anything like the painter guy, wouldn't Bill's arm just fall off at this point? I, I guess the thing is, the the other cop is very carefully trying to keep up. And they're, it, it is this wild race where he's, they're both just parallel trying to not get Bill's arm ripped off. <laughs> While also dodging incoming traffic. Yeah, and that one really great part that, like, right at the end of it where they're heading towards a divide in the road and, like, oh, a divided yeah. tunnel. That was and the Bill coolest. To, yeah, and Bill has to shoot the uh, the chain of the handcuff. Yeah, just at the last second. I mean, that's a great fucking stunt moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, the, he shoots the chain... Which causes the the killer's car to go flying and, of course, crashes into another car and is made of explodium because this is a movie in the 90s. Oh, yeah, you got to do it. This is post anything after uh, the the first run of uh, Simpson Bruckheimer films. You got to be cars got to explode. People expect it. So we see uh, we see the killer get out. And he's got the two legs and another arm. He's carrying them out of <laughs> that the is, burning wreckage. That is such a good image when, you know, he crashes the car and he's just got, like, a, a leg up on the dashboard. And it's like, like a, trying to bundle them all under his arms. It looks like Ed Gein's car if it's he so had a car. Just a, a bunch of body parts like, oh, I got to get these. You know, the car is on fire. 
Yeah, he walks. Singed. He walks, but who should meet him but the doctor who puts a blanket on him? Of course. Because they're him. in cahoots. Yeah. <laughs> For whatever reason, we, we I don't no, no, I because... don't know. I it, it has to be sort of uh, she's a serial killer groupie who uh, corresponded with them in prison. I I don't really I see guess. any other rationale for it. Or maybe she just really wanted to do this big crazy medical thing. I don't really know why she'd be into the serial killer in that regard. Again, you can't look at it too closely. No, no. If you think about it, it makes no sense. So. Bill decides he's going to put a stop to this once and for all and decides to go to the medical center. Yeah. Cool place. I Very love, cool. I, I love the tableau, the, the special glass case with all of the bits of Fletcher other than his head because his head's out doing stuff. Yeah, his head's out doing stuff and his arm is attached to Bill. But we've got like the two legs and the other arm and the wriggling torso that just won't stop wiggling. <laughs> oh, it's straight out of Flesh for Frankenstein. It's great. <laughs> and, and yeah, in this like glass case. <laughs> just a glass clear case full of liquid like the back to tank. Yep. So, like, oh, what the shit is this? <laughs> great. Yeah. yeah, and the doctor shows up and he confronts her and she's like, but now we transplant heads. Do you know what this means? Also, like, know- we'll take the arm back now. You you wanted to get rid of it? We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, we're ready to take the arm back. It's like, well, now I, I want I- it, maybe? <laughs> maybe I don't want you to have it, is the thing. Yeah, yeah, especially since... So, why then... Did she chop up Fletcher if she was just going to put him back together again? I don't know. Uh, no, it well, doesn't to, work. To do this cool medical thing and to get him out of prison by he dies and then he comes back to life. But again, it's a cartoon plot that doesn't really fit together. It's uh, it's very bizarre. But just uh, so, you know, Charlie obviously sneaks up on him, knocks him the fuck out. Yeah, Knock, knocks him out. And they try to do the operation on him again. Uh, and he wakes up again. <laughs> he wakes up, and with his superhuman arm strength, he is able to break the restraints this time. And in <laughs> in the uh, in the fight to get him restrained, Fletcher ends up shooting the doctor not once but twice. Yeah, just brutally, just right in the head. Yeah, and, and like it looks like the doctor is about to get up, and Fletcher's about to get up, and. Fletcher shoots and somehow hits the doctor a second time. It, it doesn't make any sense, but I love it anyway. Right. And uh, somehow also Bill kills Charlie with Charlie's arm. <laughs> yeah, Bill arm. kills Charlie with Charlie's arm and then shoots all the body parts so, in the case. So him being able to kill Charlie himself with the evil arm, does that not suggest... That everyone was right and that all of the shit that he was doing with the arm that he said was the evil arm's fault was kind of his fault. Yeah, because uh, my theory is that he became a psychologist dealing with like the criminally insane without any thought about what that would do to his own psyche. And he just he can't handle it. And now he finally has something to blame it on, which is this arm. See, I would say having... I, I've known some people who uh, majored in psychology. I've been in psychology courses. Uh, not a whole lot because I found it to not be for me <laughs> after Fair, a yeah. couple. Uh, but 
I, I don't want to bait with too broad of a brush, but I never knew anyone who was in psychology long term who was well adjusted. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's usually something you go into because you have neuroses and stuff, and you you want to self examine. I just feel like he has a lack of self examination. Yes. Yeah. Like throughout the movie, he's doing all these journal entries, but it's never about him. It's always about where does evil live? Does it live in the flesh? Does it live in the mind, the soul, the heart? Does it live on the skin? <laughs> it lives in the flesh. But it's it is him finally getting some practical experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, Charlie gets his head blowed up by yeah. uh, by Bill with his gun with. The shotgun, and, yeah. Yeah, wow. the shotgun. It's it's a very messy just headshot. Yeah, and we basically cut to like him in the park being like, Well, I know that evil isn't stored in the arm because now that Charlie's dead, I'm miraculously not evil anymore. Well it turns out evil is stored in the balls. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a weird final shot where he's just writing in his journal and it's this sort of like painting-esque tableau, and, you know, the the beautiful trunk of a tree and the wife in his lap and uh, all, all the park going on behind him. And it just mm. has this long lingering shot where uh, the credits roll. Yeah, the credits roll with scary music. Yeah. This idyllic park setting. Which is... It, I, I, I would say that it suggests as well that uh, what I was saying, that it is kind of just part of him, that all the bad stuff that the arm did, as well as the good stuff that the arm did, is still based in his own psyche. Oh, for sure. The other guys never hurt anybody. No. The, o- the only thing really happened is the one guy just ran a red light. I mean, I assume that Remo just didn't have the arm strength to hurt anybody because that thing came <laughs> off like it was attached with rubber bands. <laughs> yeah. But, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It, um... Re, re- the, the, the Brad Dourif death, it reminds me quite a lot of the Brad Dourif death in Trauma. Mm. Remember the... The one we watched oh. all back where he gets his head chopped off in the elevator shaft? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. A lot like that. Yeah, they're kind of similar. That one, his head tumbling down uh, rather than the rest of the body. Yeah, so this is a fun, stupid movie that's that goes really wild but kind of drags in the middle. I mostly recommend it. Yeah, I think it's a great time. It is not quite as full tilt as The Borrower, but when it's at its best, it has that same energy. It's one of these that, on first viewing, I'm like, this is going to be like a a Halloween perennial. It's such a good party movie. It's one that everyone's like, what the hell is that? (laughs) Yeah. It'd be a really great one to watch with a group of people. Yeah, but... uh... Not as good as Battles Without Honor and Humanity. <laughs> Obviously, not even no. Close. Not in the same kind of stratosphere. Uh, you know, that, that one's kind of an internationally recognized masterpiece. This is a silly movie. Yeah. <laughs> a known silly movie. I mean, it was a box office bomb. It didn't make its budget <laughs> back. <laughs> I'm not that surprised. No, but I kind of love it. it. You know, it's not great, but it's so much fun. It, it's pretty fun. Like, the killer just looks so ridiculous with his neck brace he's just he just looks hilarious he doesn't look quite as funny as Kiefer sutherland does with his neck brace and freeway oh no that that's different. that's much more sinister <laughs> yeah 
So any last thoughts before we head on to our third and final section? I want you to take this arm off. And we're back for part three, The Watched Stacks. All the other physical media stuff we've watched in the past week. And we're going to decide on what we're going to cover next week. We've got a whole bunch of picks this week. Ooh, do we ever? Uh, first up is Raiders of the Sun, which is a much too late Mad Max knockoff. Because you got a lot of those in the 80s. Uh-huh. But this was 1991. It's just late to the game. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's too long. I, it's actually 92. 92. But yeah, really late to the game. It's sort of vaguely a sequel to Wheels of Fire, which I've discussed the other week, the other Mad Max ripoff where he's got a flamethrower on his car. Oh, right, yeah. Desert Warrior. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's kind of, theoretically, it's a sequel to that. It's by the same director, and it has uh, sequences from the end of the first movie as a prologue at the beginning of this movie as a flashback. But it doesn't really have much connection other than they're both... I mean, it's it's the same way all of the Mad Max movies are interconnected, anyways. Although it's a different actor, hmm, okay. So it's not, you know, it's it's not like it's Mel Gibson, uh, right. you know, or the fake Mel Gibson they had in the first one, who's just styled like Mel Gibson and had a similar car. Anyway, this one, uh, there's another guy, and uh, it, it's I don't know, it's post-apocalypse shit. You know, you got all the same basic Mad Max plot stuff, gas, you know, car fighting. There's a thing where they 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 rope swing fight. That's kind of the big innovation in this one. Okay, all right. <laughs> Next up, Le Chat on the Sack, or The Cat in the Bag. Right, bag, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, the, the chat. Uh, I, my mind's in the gutter, so I, I have to ruin everybody's day with this. The, the Chat on the Sack, it's just, if you read, if, if you hear it in English, it sounds dirty. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, so th- this is a French, uh, a Quebecois film, a Montreal movie from 1964. Okay. So like right around the height of the FLQ era, you know, when oh. you know, the separatist movement was kind of starting to heat up there. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a whole thing. Yeah, and it's not like expressly about that, but it's about our main character is sort of an angry young Quebecois man who is he's very leftist. But he's really obnoxious. He's it, it's essentially supposed to be showing the final months of his relationship with his girlfriend. OK, because he's just kind of neglecting her and being shitty to her. And she just has better things to do. And she has a functional way of a, approaching life, whereas he's an idealist and also just really lazy. And he moves out to the country to, you know, think about Marxism and stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And it's interesting to see kind of just the the putative uh, thought processes of like the angry young man, the person who uh, would come to be one of the voices of the separatist movement in you know our era. Uh, it's it's sort of uh, exploring that viewpoint as well as the counter viewpoint of his girlfriend, who's just a more functional person and uh, seems better off without him. Mm, all right. So it's part of uh, uh, three movies. A uh, three 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 film set from Canadian International Pictures called The Other French New Wave. So interesting uh, of you know uh, Quebecois sixties uh, new wave films. 
You know, I don't think I, I I'm sure I have, and I'm sure you're going to name something immediately, but I don't <laughs> think I've seen a, a Quebecois film. I can't think of anything immediately offhand. I mean, I've seen a lot, but uh, I don't know. I just watched a lot of that stuff. It was just always available to watch on CBC as a oh, kid. So. Right. I've definitely, seen, <laughs> I've definitely seen many, many of those. Don't remember the names or content of any of them, but I've watched them all, I'm sure. That's fair. Uh, Hitchcock did a movie in Quebec one time, which was pretty interesting. Oh. It's called I Confess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, About a a priest who knows who did the crime, but, you know, it was told to him in the secrecy of uh, the the confessional, and he's really conflicted. It's got Montgomery Clift. It's really good. Cool, cool. Uh, next, we've got two tons of turquoise to towels tonight. I'm not going to try to say that three times fast. It is uh, the last one in the Up All Night with Robert Downey Sr. Eclipse box. Uh, I've been watching these for quite a while. Uh, we, we haven't covered any of them. They're all very obscure, very strange. I skipped Putney Swope. I've seen it a bunch of times, and I also have a separate disc of it that's better. So we'll totally have to cover it sometime because that one's rad uh, it's about uh we'll, we'll just brief sidebar on putney swope uh it's about an advertising company and they they like it's a bunch of white dudes and one black guy and the white dudes all kind of are cheesed off about something or other and they're all having to nominate someone for the new vice president or the new presidency because the old guy died Oh, okay, so this person's got to be the Hudsucker proxy. It's kind of that, but he's just tough and savvy, and he just, like, turns around the company and makes them militant. Okay. And he he just takes over the advertising company and does very anarchic advertising for a while. And it's, you know, an excuse to uh, let Robert Downey Sr. do a whole bunch of fun advertising parodies. And just, it's like (laughs) proto-Saturday Night Live. All right. But anyway, Two Tons of Turquoise to Taos tonight is, uh, wow, I mean, how would you describe it? It's <laughs> Well, the descriptor on uh, Letterbox is, a film without a beginning or an end, moment to moment is a rush of curious sketches, scenes, and shots that takes on a rhythmic life of its own. Yeah, it's that tells a, me nothing. It's just a bunch of scenes. Like, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, it makes sense to me having watched four other or at least five other Robert Denny's because I've seen at least one outside of this set uh Greaser's Palace which is also crazy that we've got to do sometime <laughs> uh and you know having experienced enough of his work I recognize it as like it's a series of Robert Downey senior gags but they're not necessarily jokes they're just like sequences that are sort of vaguely funny like the the title of the movie comes from uh, this sequence where there's this lady saying, well, you're going to get my turquoise to Taos tonight. And there's the other guy who just, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it was fun, but I, I don't know what you'd even make of it. Otherwise it's got baby RDJ in it. All right. Okay. It's kind of dedicated to him. I think hmm. yeah, it's kind of cute. <laughs> Next up, Metal Detector Maniac. <laughs> I sent you a clip from this. This is where the there it's these two songwriters and they're on sabbatical from the university. Oh yeah, 
where the one guy's like, call the cops because we have writer's block. <laughs> so they, these guys, they, uh, they're they supposed to be music professors, and they go on sabbatical kind of on a technicality because they have enough seniority that they're allowed to, even though, you know, they're they're their concept is just you immediately write about what's happening to you in this moment and you just kind of always uh, it's it's improv songwriting kind of okay it's like we see them uh seeing one of their graduates off at the beginning as they write a song about taking this course all right <laughs> <laughs> it's very cornball anyway they they go on their thing and their plan is well we're just going to play a bunch of basketball and then we'll jump into the the recording studio and We'll, uh, you know, read the newspaper and we'll get fired up and we'll just write songs about what we're feeling, what we've seen. And then, How does you know, that work out? I mean, not great. They get writer's block pretty quickly, obviously. That's, yeah. <laughs> so they're at the basketball court and there's this guy who's uh, using a metal detector in the field nearby. And they become hyper fixated on him and decide he's a scary maniac who's a danger to everyone around. And they start talking to a jogger about him. And they start warning her and. Uh, ultimately, they keep approaching the jogger about this guy, and the jogger starts running away from them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and yeah, it's they 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 feel just like well, the guy just gives off a really bad vibe, so we're sure he's a bad guy, and he's probably doing something sinister. And they start investigating him. They write their whole album of, as a concept album about their case against him, and then <laughs> you know they finally have to do. A live performance of it and they realize that the guy's actually going to show up to the show because it started to get publicity oh no <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's it's very shaggy and shambling but you know it, it's it was amusing okay along for <laughs> this sort of thing because like an hour and 40 minutes or something oh wow yeah an hour 50 even. yeah it's it's it 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 does feel long at times i mean it's very loose uh, next up, Glow, the story of the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. I've heard of this. I haven't so this, seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, so it's a documentary on the original TV series. I feel like I saw this show as a kid, and I can't confirm whether or not for sure I did, but it just it it touched a nostalgic vibe in me. Uh, what like uh, a lot of the footage of the show, it just felt deeply familiar. Because. Okay. It, it ran like 86 to 90, so it's like primordial memories for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It has pretty much all of the wrestlers. We kind of catch up with uh, everyone and interview them all about their experience being on the show. They have lots of fun clips from the show. There's not a lot of focus to it. It doesn't have a whole lot of narrative. It's just, mm. you know, they... They got hired for the show. They they did the show. They all thought the show was great. They loved it. Uh, and then their financial backer, even though the show was a surprising success, it kind of seems like maybe it was originally started as a tax shelter write-off and they expected it to fail and then it unexpectedly did really well. Okay, that's, that's an interesting story. Yeah, and then uh, ultimately the back. I mean, that's everyone's theory. No one has any real concrete information, unfortunately, because they couldn't talk to anyone uh, other than the wrestlers themselves or okay. you know, actresses. Uh, yeah. They, you know, they they fulfilled a casting call and they came in as actresses. Although a couple of them were pro wrestlers already. Hmm. But you know, uh, before this, 
uh, female wrestling was very ghettoized and hard to find. So uh, this was sort of a, a watershed for that. Uh, and, and that's kind of one of the main thrusts of it. But ultimately, the backer just randomly pulled out. Uh, they have lots of theories on why, but again, nobody really knows. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, they uh, arrange a reunion and everybody you know gets to meet up again. Uh, I don't know. It's super emotional. <laughs> it's mm. uh, it's it's a uh, very, very. You know, everybody just kind of it, it feels unresolved because it's unresolved for everyone. Uh, they no one really knows what happened or why it just suddenly went away. And all of them kind of uh, feel like cheated that it just sort of randomly disappeared and then all of them had this seemingly rising career that was cut short so it's kind of a bummer but Mm, all right okay well that sounds interesting anyway Mm -hmm. yeah i i really liked it but yeah it's uh uh it's an emotional watch Mm. next up hapkido which is another angela mao kung fu picture oh cool so this one is much in the Chinese boxer sort of mold. It, it's set in Korea during the Japanese occupation of Korea. Okay, yeah. And I'm not exactly clear on when that is. I think it's sometime during the mm, 1800s, maybe? Uh, it says 1934. Oh, that early. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the... Uh, it's it's extremely anti-Japanese. Like the, I, you kind of hear a lot of uh, anti-Japanese sentiment in these kung fu movies. You know, there there's always that sort of friction. This one, it's kind of just the whole text is like, oh, the Japanese, they're evil and they think Korea entirely belongs to them, and they're always saying how everything in Korea belongs to me, and all Koreans exist only to serve us Japanese. And it's like, woo. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> that might be uncomfortable. It was weird. It, it was definitely strange. But, you know, the Kung Fu's really rad. You got Sammo Hung in there as younger brother to Angela Mao. Uh, they're the Hapkido people because they studied in Korea and then they come back to China to open a Hapkido school. But then there's like a rival Japanese school. And it's sort of like the situation with the military police in Battles Without Honor and Humanity. The Japanese just seem to be allowed to do whatever the hell they want in China. Right. <laughs> and they, you know, they attack the school and we have the warring schools and all that. And, you know, they it's, it's the Chinese school? boxer. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's Chinese boxer. Well, they, they decide they're going to uh, take over the school and, you know, they're going to run it, but you're going to uh, run it as a subsidiary of our school. <laughs> we'll, oh. we'll funnel students into our school through yours. Oh, I see. So we'll we'll drink your student milkshake. It, mm-hmm. It's along those lines. Uh, the the fun thing she has this uh, mystical rod of punishment that she brought from the main Hapkido <laughs> Institute. It's just this big metal stick that's like a square. It's sort of like a ruler that she hits people <laughs> with at the end. She's like, "You're gonna get. I'm gonna fucking teach you the Hapkido rule." Yeah. <laughs> pretty fun <laughs> right uh but yeah the the, the anti-japanese sentiment is strong <clears throat> <laughs> next up convoy busters which is uh, another reteaming of stelvio massey director of highway racer with uh maurizio murley the main actor our boy palma yeah 
And it's a Palma-esque character. He's much more serious in this one. It's a much more serious-toned movie. Okay. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of like a movie in two parts. In the first part, uh, like right from the beginning, you you see these this guy uh, find the executed body of a teenage girl. Like she she's been professionally had her throat slashed. Okay. And you know our our murder our our Palma in this one he's a homicide detective and he's got like a long coat and he's got all sorts of facial hair and he, he's much more serious looking. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's all haunted. And he's really driven, and he's, he investigates the case, and he starts uncovering a line up to the son of a really rich guy. And he realizes that there's a judge who's been funneling in information to the rich guy, and ultimately they just transfer him to another town because they uh, get sick of him. <laughs> Stop trying to root out corruption. Go over there. Yeah, so... Because the other, because he realizes that the guy in the other town had been involved in diamond smuggling, he decides to uh, become an anti-smuggling cop. But they send him to this, this shitty little beach town that has like no crime. But in like one day, he invests. He like he he kind of uh, <laughs> rolls some tourists and finds that there's like an illicit uh, gun smuggling trade in this town, and he starts. <laughs> uncovering the racket and it gets fucking crazy there's some really insane uh, like i showed you the bit with the helicopter oh yeah (laughs) he's the one shooting the guy from the helicopter in that scene that's from the beginning of the movie where he's that's like the first part where he's uh keeps being told not to do the case and then he just like because they transfer him to different departments Initially, they they say like, okay, homicide. We need to get you off this case. You're messing with the higher ups. We'll put you on the emergency response squad. Which now <laughs> they gave him a helicopter. That was a big mistake. He fucking hunts the guy down. <laughs> Damn it! You weren't supposed to investigate the case. Yeah, yeah, it's a good time. Uh, <laughs> next up, Rapinha. Uh, this is uh, the first of three movies in Mexican Gothic, the films of Carlos Enrique Taboada. It's a Ooh. new box set from Vinegar Syndrome. Okay. This one's not super gothic, I would say. This one's kind of a very straightforward uh, greed. And uh, I, I don't know, it's not so much, well, greed is definitely a part of it. But so there's this, this guy, he is a wood chopper in this remote, mexican mountain village and like born into poverty born into generations of poverty in an an extremely impoverished town Uh so this is just his life he chops wood for a living and that's kind of all he does he wanders into the mountains chops enough wood and then uh uh, you know he he ekes out a living and he's got his uh, best friend uh who's uh married to i think it's his wife's sister i think like and the the two of them they're both wood choppers and they you know they they go out and chop wood and that's their whole existence and his dad gets really sick and he goes to the doctor to uh, get medicine and he overhears the doctor talking about what impoverished pathetic animals everyone in the town is. Oh, okay. So like the doctor from Gemini. It's it's sort of like that. Yeah. I mean the guy doesn't ultimately turn out to be a 
bad guy. It's just he 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 is sort of horrified with the conditions he just is facing all the time. And it, it kind of strikes this guy's soul. He really decides he wants to make a different life. His wife is currently pregnant. He doesn't want his kid to be born into poverty. But he also has literally no way to get money. So then he's out chopping wood and a plane crashes right nearby. Okay. And nobody else knows about it. So oh. he uh, realizes and like, he goes up and, you know, it's a bunch of people who are well off. They're flying on a plane over uh, Mexico right now in uh, a small private jet. Not a private jet, I guess. It's not exactly a jumbo jet, but, you know, early commercial jet. Okay, and yeah. Everybody's yeah. dead. You know, no survivors. So you realize, like, oh, wow. all of them got a lot of money. All of them got a lot of jewelry. There's tons of cool shit in the luggage. I mean, there's stuff he's never seen before. He's never seen a pair of binoculars. He's never seen a clock or a camera. This is like, this is like an incredible jackpot. Well, so, it's a good thing the trooper don't need that money because I sure can <laughs> use it. Right. He, he figures out, oh, we'll just trooper this away into a cavern. And, uh, it'll be fine. But he and his buddy, they start to put away the loot. And then there's these two other guys who show up. Two other, you know, random dudes who work on the mountain who's like, what's this commotion about? So they have kind of a face off with them. Ultimately, they kill the other two dudes. And while our main guy, like our first guy who heard the doctor saying this stuff, he's really driven and he's the one who's driven to kill. It really upsets the other guy and he's sort of soured on the Enterprise. But the other guy's really driven and he just kind of keeps forcing it forward. Eventually, people show up to investigate the crash and he gets spooked and they're like, I guess we got to get the loot and get out of town. You know, it's extremely sad and bleak. <laughs> uh, it it uh, gets it just gets darker and darker and darker and uh, it's it's brutal, but uh, it was very good. All right, cool. Next up, Goldfinger. I love Goldfinger. It's so, one of my favorites. It's so fucking good. I would say that it is, for better or worse, the most iconic Bond film. I agree with that. <laughs> I would say that's definitely the case. Because the first two don't really have it, but this is the one that really brings in his womanizing. Mm-hmm. And uh, just certain quirks of the character. Here he is using Bond, James Bond, as a catchphrase already. Uh, <laughs> but the set pieces are so rad. Every shot looks so fucking iconic. Auric Goldfinger is cool. Odd Job is cool. The Fort Knox thing is cool. Pussy Galore is cool. Yep. <laughs> his also, plan, well, his <laughs> plans kind of sucks, but, you know. I, don't, I, I think the plan's kind of great. The that he's just irradiating the gold to drive up the value of all the gold he already has. That's honestly kind of genius. I mean, yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, again, uh, Pussy Galore already second evil lesbian in a uh, Bond film. <laughs> We're only 3D. Uh, but yeah, you know, that's fucking rules. Next up, Alley Cat. This is like a, an 80s crime exploitation movie but it has sort of the flavor of an after school special <laughs> a one woman vigilante squad she's uh very petite and she looks a lot like joey ramone <laughs> <laughs> she's got kung fu moves 
Uh, nobody course. else does. And <laughs> so, you know, she's fending off this gang. You know, they, they come and try to steal her tires and she kung fus them and they're like, what the shit? And then they're trying to rape somebody later and she kung fus them. I'm like, this, this lady's interfering in all our important gang business. <laughs> like stealing tires and raping ladies. <laughs> so, you know, it becomes a gang war against the alley cat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's goofy. I I had a good time, but it's, it's kind of silly. Next up, Cat's Eye. Mm. The poster for this looks like somebody trying to do a, like trying to Photoshop a weird meme in two thousand eight that's never gonna take off. It's bad. Uh, it it's so weird. Like this, it, it was a very low budget Stephen King anthology film. I think maybe a whole lot of the budget went to Stephen King writing the script. Mm, okay. Uh, so he did write it. He did write it. Like, he actually wrote the screenplay. It's based on two pre-existing short stories from Night Shift. Uh, the first one's Quitters, Inc. Second one is The Ledge. And then there's a third one that he wrote for this that is completely out of step with both of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because, so... Quitters, Inc. is uh, obviously Stephen King was trying to quit smoking or was reacting to the stop smoking campaigns that were coming out at the end of the 70s. Okay. So in Quitters, Inc., James Woods is uh, signed up to Quitters, Inc. by this guy. And uh, they tell him, like, oh, we, we guarantee we'll make you quit smoking. Uh, we'll uh, give you constant surveillance for the ne- for the first month. Uh, until we know we can trust you. <laughs> uh, and uh, oh, th- this is where the cat comes in. The cat is the hero to this story and runs through all three segments and is sort of the star of the third segment. All right. Co-star with Drew Barrymore. So the cat just watches the other segments, more or less? Well, in this one, see, at the beginning, the cat is running away from Cujo and Christine. Okay. <laughs> this it's extreme, it's it's extremely cute with constant self-referentiality there's so many references to other stephen king films there's a part where james woods is watching the dead zone on tv and complaining about it and it's like you can't complain about it you're in cat's eye <laughs> <laughs> but at the beginning uh cujo is chasing the cat and then they run through the street and are almost hit by christine and just in case you didn't get that it was Christine, there's a bumper, the sticker that says, hi, I'm Christine. <laughs> I'm an evil car. <laughs> Basically, I mean, it's not exactly that wording. It's definitely, I'm Christine, I'm evil. It's it's, it's a lot. Hi, uh, my name is the man without a face. <laughs> Man without a name. Man right. without a face. I mean, I, he he just he had half of a face. To be fair. Oh right, the Mel Gibson movie. <laughs> yeah, I saw it so long <laughs> oh, ago. Oh man, my name is the man without a name would have been a much funnier joke too. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, where was I? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Christine. Right. I'm Christine. Christine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Christine. So the cat stows away on some uh, on a cigarette truck, okay, all the way to New York, and uh, she sees a mannequin come to life and turn into Drew Barrymore, who says, "You have to help me." And the cat's like, "Uh huh, uh huh," and then is captured by this guy who works for Quitters Inc. Okay. 
So this is how the cat figures into the first part. They have this uh, box with an electrified floor that they play surf music and then electrify the floor to... Uh, they're demonstrating it initially with the cat. Okay. And, okay. you know, it's jumping around and, like, getting zapped and doesn't like it. And uh, they're, this is how they're demonstrating it to James Woods. It's like, so if you smoke, it's going to be your wife in there. Fucking what? <laughs> yeah. They're like, uh, I mean, I don't really know if I want to sign up. It's like, you're already signed up to this. And, they, 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 you know, it's this whole thing where they have some kind of endowment from a very important... A deceased figure like a Rockefeller or something so they have really unlimited funds okay <laughs> it's like okay second infraction you smoke two cigarettes uh we we abduct your daughter and we put her in the box uh, <laughs> or no uh I think no second infraction is we break into your house and rape your wife I know that's either two or three they they kind of go up and down it's it's strange and then fourth <laughs> is like we fucking kill you <laughs> so you know, James you just Woods, need you to sign this contract before you read it make sure you don't read it there's no time yeah it's, it's a situation where like well you're already in the door so we got you uh and you know james woods has to quit smoking uh part two the ledge uh the cat ends up in i think it's vegas maybe it's atlantic city or something uh, ends up with there. There's a bunch of crooked ass shitty gamblers who are trying to make it run across the road and uh, betting against whether it will get across or not in traffic. Okay. So our main uh, high roller gambler, he's betting on the cat living, and he sort of guides it and then causes a huge car accident so that the cat is able to get across, and then he adopts the cat. Aww. <laughs> but he's not a good guy. Oh, <laughs> as it the turns guy who caused a car accident to make money isn't good. <laughs> turns out he's not so good, and he brings in Ted Stryker from Airplane. <laughs> it's the same actor. Uh, he is just Ted Stryker from Airplane. He looks. He, he's like dressed the same. Uh, he even <laughs> opens like he shows up coming out of a bus terminal. It, it feels very similar to me. I don't know if it was intentional. Uh, and he has a proposition to him because this guy has been uh, sleeping with the rich guy's wife. Right. So he's like, all right, you go all the way around this building on the little five inch ledge. Go all the way around this building because he's on like the top floor, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll give you. You know, you can leave with my wife and I'll give you, I don't know, like a million bucks or something. And he's like, and, you know, if you don't make it, obviously you fault your death. So, you yeah. know, tough. And then uh, he shows up at various spots and, like, you know, he, he tries to hose him down. There's a pigeon that attacks him and stuff. Uh, and then third part, uh, the cat finally gets to Drew Barrymore. Oh, yay. Uh, Drew Barrymore uh, is being attacked at night by a gnome who lives in her wall. It suddenly becomes a children's movie, despite the first two sequences being about old guys with addictions. <laughs> Just real nasty old guy stuff. For some reason, they have all of the dialogue very PG-13. Like, uh, the henchman says, Oh, fiddly sticks. <laughs> Bizarre. Uh, <laughs> and of course, Drew Barrymore, she was already Firestarter before this, so you get again deep 
uh, Stephen King self-referential. It's directed by Louis Teague, who directed Cujo. Okay. <laughs> uh, and yeah, the the cat comes into the life to uh, save her from the goblin, but the mom doesn't trust cats, and uh, she thinks the cat is just trying to, I don't know, steal her breath, or she's got some <laughs> fucking old world suspicions, and you know, the dad mocks her for it, and then she takes the cat to be euthanized. She, like, gets it in a box, but, you know, obviously the cat escapes and comes back, and, you know, it, it's, it, it becomes a children's movie because the with the hero cat. But it's right. <laughs> a, a good, bizarre anthology. It makes absolutely no sense the way it's put together. The choices of those two versus this one, strange. I don't know what Stephen King was doing. I feel like it was an experiment. It's not good. Uh, it's really cheap, <laughs> but I, I've kind of always had a fascination with it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next up, Motel Hell. Uh, <laughs> this is a movie that I feel like it, it, it had some kind of like severe effect on my dad. My dad does not watch horror movies. It's the only horror movie I've ever heard him talk about. He mentions it over and over again over the years. <laughs> he must have seen it in the theater at the time and just it's i mean it is a bizarre thing right okay i i just see like the banner image is uh just a, a pig guy and a cop yeah so uh it's it's sort of derivative of texas chainsaw massacre but it's a bit more of a black comedy you got this guy farmer vincent played by rory calhoun walking around on his hind legs <laughs> all right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he, he runs, uh, Farmer Vincent's, uh, Vittles, uh, and the motel. Motel, hello. But the O is always kind of flicker. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, they, they take in various bad elements, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, it's, to me, I, I read it as kind of a, a silent majority allegory where, you know, he's, you know, the good, you know, classic old farmer, but this is sort of puncturing it. It's obviously satirical, uh, but it, it feels like in a line with like the Billy Jack movies. Anyway, he processes people into meat and sells them uh, with his uh, smoked, smoked treats, his farmer Vincent's vittles. Oh, OK. It's people. Of course. And. The the way he does it is he captures them like he he like cause auto accidents and then uh, he plants them in the ground. He plants the people in the ground. Yeah, to be like his cattle and he feeds them through like funnels and cuts their vocal cords. So he is removing their voices. Okay. You know, all of these leftist voices that he is uh, not into, because like anytime there's someone who's kind of suspect, there's a communist punk band that they take out, and the drummer is Cliff Clavin. <laughs> <laughs> so you get Cliff Clavin planted in the ground, being fed through a funnel. That was kind of funny. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, sometimes he puts on a pig mask and runs around and has uh, chainsaw fights and stuff. <laughs> you know, it, it, sure. It gets, it gets pretty wild by the end. All right, all right. Uh, next up is The Last Night, which is another Michael J. Murphy one from that uh, Magic Myth and Mutilation box. So this is the one that it's uh, sort of a slasher in the backstage of the final night of a local community theater production. All right. 
And it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's these two guys, and they bust into the backstage during the final performance, and they start killing people. They just start slaying people. As, uh, as you do. And they keep telling the actors, it's like, we just want you to finish the performance. Like, they... they in the intermission or whatever, uh, a bunch of like basically everyone clues into what's going on because there's fucking dead bodies all over the place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't hide a massacre in a currently playing play. Yeah. And they're <laughs> so they're holding them hostage while they're performing the rest of the play. And it's like you can't signal to anyone or we'll start to kill more of you. And they're like holding people backstage as, uh, with like a knife on them and. They ultimately do start killing them, and they they shoot someone who's on stage even, and they keep saying that like, look, we just want everyone to leave. It, it's suggested that I guess there's something hidden there that they want, but then why the fuck didn't they just wait until the last show was <laughs> over? Because, because what if somebody found the thing first? <laughs> I I mean, we never find out. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> at any point. There's a party downstairs that they're supposed to go down to. <laughs> it's weird like it's very strange it's got just a, a bizarre feel to it okay next is Auntie Lee's Meat Pies which is just the boldest ripoff of Motel Hell <laughs> so, so it's a ripoff of the movie alright <laughs> yeah yeah see uh, Motel Hell made in 1980 Auntie Lee's Meat Pies made in 1991 it's like the corny 90s TNA version of Motel Hell. They made it in the same location. <laughs> the same place. Yeah, they, they rented the Motel Hell, and they made it in the same goddamn place. So oh, my God. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the... It, it's, so Karen Black is Auntie Lee. She makes the greatest meat pies in all the counties. Uh, and... This one, it's much more elevated. It's much more ridiculous. It's it's more of like they have a whole process. Uh, she has her four Playboy model nieces. All of them are played by actual Playboy models. Of course. And uh, <laughs> they go out and they lure men or they shoot out the tires of cars. And they it's it's only men for whatever reason. They, they only select men and they mainly select drifters. They you get people who are from out of town. Uh, and, you know, they, they're they all kind of erotically into killing men and processing them into meat. That's all kind of, it's it's their kink and it's their job. And it's just, you know, it's working out great for everyone. <laughs> well, except for maybe the... <laughs> except for the guys who are getting turned into meat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you see that, well, one of them is like a Carl Panzram-esque serial killer. Who's like the oh, first okay. one we see get taken out and, and processed. Well, but then the, that's okay. The other guy turns out to be uh, like a rich guy who's sort of uh, got people, got a PI on his tail, and it looks like they're going to get found out. Uh, local cop, the local sheriff is Pat Morita. Oh. Now, you know, from Karate Kid. Yeah. Yeah. Master. Mr. Miyagi. Doing a southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Y'all. I can't know. Oh, it was man. amazing. It was so funny. It's like, oh, he's doing a southern accent. That's crazy. Uh, I, I want to. I, I have to see this. I have to know. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's very goofy. It is 
uh, like another one where it's it feels a little too long. Like it's a full ten minutes longer than Motel Hell, and it's much slimmer <laughs> in terms of its uh, concept. But I mean, it's very goofy and gory, over the top kind of silliness. All right. And last up is Grand Jeté, where there is this lady. She is a ballerina. And, okay. Uh, she, she had a kid when she was really young, and she left him with her mother to raise him while she pursued her career. All right. So, you know, it's years later. He's a teenager now, and she comes back to town in, I, I think it's Berlin, comes back to visit and stay with them for a bit. And uh, you know, it gets to know her son a little bit. And, uh, you know, it turns out both of them have a lot in common. They're both really into abusing their bodies uh, he's really into BDSM. Okay. So she goes to one of his BDSM shows where he does some cock and ball torture and he wins. So it's like a big night for him. <laughs> he, he, he holds the, the weight from his penis the longest. Right. Okay. Get that. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, afterwards, uh, oh, one thing leads to another. <laughs> Uh, and they, they, yeah, they, they uh, enter a relationship. Uh, it's, it's a strange movie. So, so the mom and the son. No, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> uh, there, there's, uh, you know, uh, the next day she says, "Does it feel different inside me now?" What? <laughs> <laughs> So those are our 15 picks. What do you figure? You just made me forget <laughs> everything that we talked about. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's a line that stuck with me. I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, um, um, uh, shit. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Let, let's, uh, Goldfinger. Crap. I can't think. Oh my God. Let's do Goldfinger. You want to do Goldfinger? Yeah. Yeah, I know that one's good. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you you could take a breath and, and decide if uh, you pause. Well, actually, hold on, hold on. Goldfinger right, right. is good, and it's a safe one. But what do you think would be besides Goldfinger? What do you think's what was your favorite? I, don't know. I mean, Goldfinger's definitely the best movie I watched. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Convoy Busters, Motel Hell, both pretty great. Uh, Rapinha was very interesting, but also, yeah, it's it's bleak. Uh, Le Chat Dunlessac, very solid and interesting, kind of an interesting peek into 60s Montreal cinema. But yeah, I mean, obviously Goldfinger is by far the best, but, uh, you know, it, it is also one that we've both seen a bunch of times. So Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I don't mind covering it because I do love Goldfinger. But I am also going to continue covering all of the James Bond. Like, I'm watching all of them. Yeah, yeah. We will have those. Well, hmm. Actually, let's do... Let's do Convoy Busters. I want to... I want to see more of this Italian... Polizia Testa. All right. So we also have quite a few additions, because obviously we watched a whole bunch of shit. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got, let's see, eight, eight additions to uh, go over before we choose. So first, Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows is a documentary that was being made 
uh, a, a crew was hanging with Brett the Hitman Hart uh, during his final days with uh, the WWF leading up to the Montreal Screwjob. Oh, um, interesting. All right. Because I, I, I know a little bit about this story, but I don't know the details. Yeah, and it's clearly just Vince McMahon is a real-life supervillain. <laughs> well, I, I know that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is where it was really starting to come out, I guess. This is like this is like late 90s when this comes out. Mm-hmm. Next up, The Merry World of Leopold Z. This is another Quebecois film from the uh, French New Wave set, or other French New Wave set, rather. Okay. Uh, got kind of a cute plot. It's a Christmas movie. It's this guy who is, uh, the, he runs the plow in Montreal, and he's just got a whole bunch of plowing to do before he can get home to, or before he can get off to get uh, presents for his family. Okay. Now here it's just kind of zany, it's just, you know, him plowing the roads <laughs> on Christmas <laughs> Eve. All right. Kind of a madcap comedy sort of thing. Cool. Next up, River's Edge, which is uh, early 90s, kind of peak... Uh, Oliver, like it, it's got uh, both Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. Oh, okay. It's it's one of the movies that the two of them did together. And it's oh wow, uh, he looks so young. It's very young. This is early, early. So it's uh, they're these friends. You know, it's a bunch of high school friends, and one of them murders his girlfriend. And you know, the the police haven't caught up with it yet, and they you know they haven't found the body or anything. And he's starting to tell people, and they're all kind of individually reacting to it and sort of the shockwaves going through everyone. Okay. Uh, next up is Heard She Got Married, which is from the same people who made Metal Detector Maniac. All right. And my understanding is it's very similar uh, in terms of its overall style and tone. You got our guys who make songs about stuff based on what they're seeing. And uh, <laughs> this one, he seems to get really suspicious of his mailman. Yeah, that's actually the only thing in the description on uh, letterboxes. <laughs> a musician is suspicious of his mailman. That's all you got. Uh, <laughs> next up. Maybe that's all you need. I, I guess so. Uh, next up, Sento versus Evil Brain. Oh, shit. Is Sento going to get unmasked? No. <laughs> Probably not. This is the first Sento movie. Oh. Way back from like 1955, I think, maybe 56. Oh, Okay. Uh, my understanding is Santo is not in very much of it. <laughs> <laughs> they they were still figuring out the formula. Right, right, because we saw what the forty third movie. It's something like that. It's like deep. <laughs> it, Just, it, yeah, that's not an exaggeration. It really yeah. was that deep, wasn't it? It's somewhere around there. Like it was maybe thirty four, but it could have been forty three. Yeah. Uh, next up is the Big Racket, which is another Politiotaski. This is uh. One where I remember exactly which this one was. Let me look it up real quick. Oh, so it's a guy sort of uh, doing an anti-mob thing. He's trying to bust up organized crime in a sleepy tourist town. Okay. Uh, and it's just sort of like him dealing with uh, constant blowback. I, my understanding is it's like one of these really intense, high octane uh, Politsiotesky types. So it's one that's just. Constant crazy violence. Bleak, heavy violence. Not... Mm. Next up, uh, Blacker Than the Night, which is the next one, the Carlos Enrique Tabuada box. It's, uh, these ladies move into this new house, but the cats own the house. Oh! <laughs> and it's a haunted house. And uh, 
I think it's a killer cat. I think there's like the cat owns the place and the cat is maybe in charge of the ghosts. Oh, <laughs> nice. That's sort of the impression I get from what I've read and the sort of promotional materials. Uh, next, uh, last uh, is Quaylen, uh, a.k.a. The Hereafter, which is next in the Michael J. Murphy set. Uh, this one sounds pretty bizarre. There's this uh, guy, he murders his dad, and then just the house becomes crazy fucking, and ha- crazy fucking haunted. All right. Oh, hey, this one is like the length of an actual movie. It's 84 minutes. This is where uh, up to now, like all of these first ones have been on the first two discs. Uh, from this point, there's only a couple movies per disc. So I guess here they all start to be semi-feature length. Okay. Yeah. So what do you figure for our main pick next week? Well, what indeed? I think, well, it's I've, I've kind of narrowed it down to two. Um, all right. I'm thinking I want to see the next Shinya Tsukamoto. But I'm Snake also... Of June. Yeah, Snake of June. Uh, see what that's all about. But we also only have one more of the female prisoner Scorpion left. That's true. Uh, uh, Scorpion number 701's Grudge Song. So my understanding with that one is it's the only one that's not directed by the same guy. Yeah, yeah, that one's... And it is the last one that they made, I believe. Yes, yeah. Uh, well... Oh, actually, you know what? Hmm? Uh... Let's let's go into a completely different direction and right. do the the Ma Barker one, Bloody Mama. Bloody Mama. All right. I've been uh, meaning so, to get to this for a while. So this is Corman doing the uh, Ma Barker saga. You got Robert De Niro, very young, in there before he was famous as oh, wow. one of the sons, one of the Barker boys. Oh, this would have been. This is before he was even in Godfather Two. Yeah, this is like a solid four years earlier. Oh wow. So you got De Niro, you got Bruce Dern in there also. Uh, Pat Hangel is one of the guys. Scatman Crothers is in this, too. I have seen this, but not recently. Hmm. And for Shelley Winters as Ma. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just a crazy exploitation version of the Mar Barker story. Definitely leaning on the myth and not the facts. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, that should be fun. That should be be good uh so we were thinking uh convoy busters for the second one was it that's yeah that's what that's what i finally settled on okay cool after bouncing <laughs> back and forth like eight times like, wait which was it like okay okay okay, okay. uh all right so yes next uh, week we'll be covering bloody mama and convoy busters a uh, couple 70s crime flicks very uh, bloody exploitation-y stuff Oh, God damn it! I made a theme again, didn't I? The themes are good. Okay. So, <laughs> so, do you have any last thoughts before we close up for this week? Yeah, I can't, I wanted to be a cop so I could be a racer and race cars. That's that's. I don't want to solve crime. I just want to race cars fast. That's why I'm a cop. See, this one, he loves solving crime. He actually has an exact same speech like that. It's just, torture and violence is all I know. That's how I get results. <laughs> It's not fair. No. (laughs) Shooting people from helicopters. Come on. You just want to shoot them from the helicopter. (laughs) Oh, the whiny boss. 
I it will love be fun. Him. Yeah, I am looking forward to more of Yamamori's bullshit. Back oh, yeah. Yamamori back on his bullshit. <laughs> All right, well, uh, uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, pretty girls, beware of his heart of gold.